I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. would love to confirm that we will not be doing any Morgan Freeman impressions tonight. If I didn't care, more than words can say. If I didn't care, would I feel this way? Uh, yeah, it's against the law. <laughs> it is against the law. It's it's like doing an Obama impression. It's very specific, and you're very familiar with it, but it doesn't mean you get to do it. Yeah, it's okay if you were Fred Armisen, I guess, for a long time. You can do. Uh, I assume he's uh, not just a white guy, right? Yeah, Fred, Ar- Fred Armisen is uh, Hispanic. Oh, okay. So can't I don't think he can do Obama impressions. <laughs> Look, you know what? This, this we're not going to be doing any Obama impressions. If Vin Diesel nope. did an Obama impression, would you be like, "I know for sure you can't"? I I don't know for sure. I'm See? not the person to make the judgment. It doesn't feel right, though. Uh, we'll do what we will do, though, because we're not going to do a Morgan Freeman impression. To be clear, against the law. I think it's against we the will law. do we're, a we're Tim. White guys. We're, we're gonna do a Tim Robbins impression. <laughs> Ready? Wow, it's my library. <laughs> I wrote letters to all the senators in the entire country. Why are you being so obtuse? <laughs> it is funny that it is a, a great performance. A performance. It's a great performance. Genuinely made. This may be the only. The only one of his movies that an entire generation of people may have seen because he kind of stopped acting. Um, Tim Robbins? He's not in much these days. Well, I know. I don't think he stopped acting. I said kind (laughs) of. I said kind of. It's like saying no offense before you insult someone. Okay, but kind of. It could mean anything. My my point here is that he did not graduate to the um, elder statesman of acting the way that, uh, you you know, like a lot of these uh, actors of his generation would. Particularly like. What are you talking about? He stars on I Think You Should Leave. He's the star of I Think You Should Leave on Netflix. He's thus, you know, right? No, that's his son. I think you should leave with Tim Robbins. <laughs> Listen, all right, I'm looking right? at his credits. I'm looking at his credits. Uh, are you forgetting that he played Senator Robert Hammond in Green Lantern, maybe? A little movie starring uh, literally the most popular man on the face of the earth, Ryan Reynolds. You don't think that's sticking with this generation, Peter? He was in VH- VHS, which I completely forgot about. That's pretty cool. I- I honestly do not remember him in that movie. He was Sir Roger Hanley the Third. You don't remember that? Uh, no, <laughs> oh, I don't. He was in the season of Castle Man, Rock he that really... I didn't watch. Man, maybe I'll watch season two of Castle Rock. Oh, I'm looking at the TV section. He played Tom Turp in Dark Waters. Tom Turp. That Tom Turp. Tom, that has to be a real person's name because I'm, in, I'm turping here. A screenwriter would never be able to stop at Tom Turp. They wouldn't have the. They wouldn't have the guts. Uh, it's based on a New York Times Magazine article, so yeah, Tom Turp must be real. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, do you think they change? It's one of those things where, like, you know, those like old crack lists, like they changed the screenplay because the reality was too implausible. They had to bring it down. Uh, they should have done that with Tom Turp's name because I don't believe was, was Tom Turpentine. <laughs> yeah, he really hasn't been in. Oh, I, I knew he was in one of those YA. He was in that City of Ember movie that also weirdly got. Um, 
got Bill Murray in it. Oh, he's in. I think oh, probably. Oh. You, I, 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 I've seen City of Embers. City of Embers is really good. I, I haven't seen it. I, I've, watch, I've heard it's good. Yeah. You should watch that with uh, your daughters. It's a really fun family movie that just kind of disappeared into nothing. Yeah, I guess like the last like meaningful movie he was in was War of the Worlds. Like as a. And that's a great, that's a great role. He was really good. But, I mean, he was, yeah. I mean, we did, it's not even our first Tim Robbins movies. We did IQ, weirdly enough, <laughs> um, uh, where he dates Meg Ryan uh, with Albert Einstein's help. Um, sorry. Do you remember that we did that movie? Sorry. Do you remember anything about that movie? Sorry. Uh, when I knew what you real were going to say, and yet the sentence startled me. <laughs> I know. we Real movie that we somehow covered on this show. Uh, yeah, but this this kind of is his iconic performance. He also uh, directed a few movies. He directed Dead Man Walking uh, mm-hmm. in 1995, which was obviously a, a big, big hit. Uh, some Won some Oscars as well. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, we're, we're We Love to Watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And we are in our fourth week of a two-month extravaganza on dorm room poster movies. And we're on The Shawshank Redemption, which is a movie that I think when Peter and I were looking over this list, which is filled with uh, movies we loved 20 years ago and still love now. Movies that we haven't seen in maybe 15, 10 years and used to like, but aren't sure how we felt about them. Uh enough to go back and movies that we know that we aren't going to like. So it's a big eclectic mix of movies. This one, like Goodfellas was probably the most confident I was that I was going to love it as much as I've always loved it. I, uh, it hasn't been that long since I've seen it. Uh, what was really funny and not to be a cliche I can't remember the last time I watched the beginning of this movie. I had no idea that there were, I like, I did not remember that there was a court scene over the credits. I thought the movie began with him in Shawshank because like the cliche goes, so many people have watched this movie many times, but more people have watched it in finding it on a movie channel or TNT or other things and likely have missed some of the beginning. So I did not remember that it took place uh, with uh, Tim Robbins' character getting, um, getting, uh, going through the court and testifying, like I, that that's how that's probably how long it's been since I've seen the beginning of this movie. Because even in a time of streaming and stuff like this, this was such an easy movie to pop on cable, and it's so episodic and has so many like high moments. It became something that I don't think is going to ever exist again. Um, that, which is a, it's on a a cable channel so often that that's where it kind of takes off in popularity among people finding it at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday and then watching it over and over and over the way you would a fucking Big Bang, uh, rerun or like, you know, I don't know, Impractical Jokers. What do they show all the time on TV now? I don't even know. Who knows anymore? But so this type of movie, which is – this is not the only example of it. It may be the most famous example of it. Likely will never exist again because movies are a lot more like quicksand nowadays, right? They're either popular right away and then a lot of times they disappear forever. But they usually don't have these like 
20 legs. year yeah, like legs of like 20 years this movie made 16 million dollars in the box office which was the on a budget of 25 million its box office total now is something like 75 million like it, it ultimately became a theatrical hit it's three times minor, its budget very minor hit though it was the 51st gro- grossing movie of 94 well, it lost money in '94. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it did 16 million on a 25 million dollar budget. It's been re-released to theater so many times. Mm-hmm. It now has 76 million on a budget of 25 million. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I just don't think we're ever going to see another movie like this. And it is like, I don't know if it's still the case. I guess we could have done two seconds of research, but forever this movie also became known as the movie that was on top of the IMDb's top 250 movie list. Like, it was kind of this crowd pleaser that. Uh, your dad liked, your mom liked, you liked, you know, your grandparents liked. It was kind of this, like, universally beloved movie. And much like other, like, universally beloved or critically acclaimed or consensus picks, I think that just has a natural sense of, like, a backlash. It's why a lot of people come out and say, actually, Citizen Kane's not that good. I don't know why people consider it the greatest movie of all time. There was a little bit of uh, uh, that happened with this, I think, where people were like, oh, Shawshank's your favorite movie? Like, everyone loves Shawshank. And I, I'm hoping what we get at today is, yes, everyone does love Shawshank. And that is because, it, it in the same way people like It's a Wonderful Life, and specifically Darabont was pulling from... Uh, Capra movies and stuff like that and his inspiration for what kind of story he wanted to tell. It is a extraordinarily crowd-pleasing movie that everyone does like, but it's also a fantastic piece of like uh, thrilling, sentimental, and inspiring movies. Yeah, movie. a- yeah. absolutely. And, and you point out this is a movie that like everybody in the family has some affinity for it does have a classical touch like a classic kind of like almost frank capra kind of touch like it feels kind of like classic cinema in a way frank darabont very much directed it to feel classic in a lot of ways and we'll get into some of that filmmaking technique later but like uh but it also like it feels vibrant and alive and when people get hurt people get hurt bad yeah and it's just one of those movies where we that i mean that's a a little capra-ish too though right like yeah yeah I mean, George Bailey doesn't like – he's not like, oh, I guess life is great without getting literally punches to the face and thinking about, like, killing himself. And so there, there, there is that – there's a saccharine quality that is sometimes applied to Frank Camper movies because of, like, scenes like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But you're right. Like, in, a, in like, an It's a Wonderful Life or really what Darabont was going for here, people get dirty. People yeah. get mussed up. Yeah, and this is uh, this is a movie truly about the t- a test of the human soul. It feels like a post Great Depression movie to me. Yep, um, it does remind me of It's a Wonderful Life and such. Um, but the um, the the piece here that you mentioned that really rings with me is like your mom likes it, your grandpa likes it, and then like a kid is watching on TV and they're like, actually, it's not that bad. And then yeah. whatever, it's because it is. And I, the reason it became, like, a dorm room movie, a movie that people want to show each other, is because it aired, ex- like you talked about, cr- a crazy amount on TV. Yeah. Um, on 15 networks. <laughs> and it was on all the time. And it was a movie that, like, if your mom was like, oh, I don't like the part where he gets prison raped, your mom would leave the room. And then she actually would come back later. 
Because yeah. of the story structure of it, like the word episodic usually gets, I mean, it was thrown at this movie as like a, a knock against it, but the word episodic is usually a pejorative in film criticism. And in yeah. this, it, it, it is absolutely episodic, but it's part of its addictive nature is it is it makes you want to watch the next part of the story when one yeah. episode dies. When when Brooks ends, they're pulling you into the next story before you even realize it. Like, it's it, it doesn't fade to black to, like, demarcate, like, a series of acts. Yeah. All of these stories are overlapping with each other because all of these stories are affected by one another. Andy mm-hmm. Dufresne and Red are not the people that they are at the beginning of an episode as they are at the end. And... That that sort of episodic quality is amazing for TV because you can be like, oh, I just want to like you can hop in and be like, oh, oh, this well, part, oh, this part, and then you're like, I'll just watch for a, in your head, you're like, I'll just watch for a little bit. I just want to see, I want to see that the 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 plot about them uh, finishing the roof and Andy Dufresne, you know, confront telling the guard basically like, <laughs> here's a way to get around filing taxes, um, and uh, and then like before you know it. Like three hours have passed uh, yeah. with commercials. <laughs> yeah, well, and um, specifically like the the tying into the last movie we covered, Goodfellas. So like, Darabont was inspired by Goodfellas because this movie is episodic, also because it takes place over twenty years, and Goodfellas takes place over a long period of time too. And using the narration of this case of Red of Morgan Freeman's character in the same way Goodfellas does to kind of show the passage of time through like it was 1967, this was going on, stuff like that. So it's not cutting to title cards to say five years later, two years later, but you feel that momentum. And like, that's what we talked about last week is what makes Goodfellas so compulsively watchable as well, which is like there, it it is, it is a Goodfellas is episodic. It's taking like these points in these people's lives and it's going through them and showing how it starts out here and it ends up here and the growth through that. But it's not, you know, it's telling little bits over a 20 plus year period. And and that's what Shawshank's doing and using some of the same techniques that Darabont kind of stole from Goodfellas to, to tell the uh, passing of time in a uh, compelling way. It doesn't have that same propulsive kinetic energy that Goodfellas does, but the techniques to keep you interested without constantly going, you know, what year is it? Where he's, where he's saying stuff like, only took me six years of writing, so you know, hey, that scene 20 minutes ago where he su- started writing about the library and now he got his check, that was actually six years in between without necessarily feeling the same passage of time. And that kind of does propel you in a little bit more of a sedentary way, which is perfectly appropriate because these people are stuck in the same place, but it's still propelling you forward in time in a very compulsive way, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the movie is, is one of those movies that, like, Goodfellas, like, you, you start it and you're like, I'm not going to finish this tonight. I can break it in half. And then, like, yeah. it's 1 a.m. Um yeah, just a just because you want to see the end part. You want to like you want to the, the the last thirty minutes is such a series of like highs that it's like man, I'm watching some really like sad reflections on the prison system of like how this people just takes the life, how these like you know completely hypocritical men 
in positions of power are abusive and exploitative and all these other terrible things. I have to see. Like, you don't want to go to bed where the warden is still up and living and doing fine. You want to see him recognize that he has some comeuppance for the abuse and the terror that he's wrought on these people's lives who, you know, like Red says near the end, aren't even really the people that existed in many cases when they existed their crime. Like, you know, that these people being in ba- behind bars after a certain amount of time serves nobody, but in some ways just the prisoner's inability to return to society because that they've been segregated from from so long, little, but not like a public safety uh, component in the way that the system exploits them for slave labor, which is all stuff that like within this like saccharine thing in the same way that It's a Wonderful Life has a lot to say about capitalism. Like this movie has a lot to say about you know, the uh, the 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 exploitation of, like, prison labor and how bad our prison and justice system is and everything else, it sometimes gets lost in the story of, like, this personal narrative of, get, you know, getting busy living as opposed to get living uh, – get busy dying. But it still has so much of that, like, you know, kind of venom underneath – underneath its surface at, like, an institution that probably a lot of people watching this movie – and loving this movie goes, well, it's good, though. Yeah, it's good that we have those. Or, it's good we have, like, cops are, obviously, actually, these were bad cops. And that guy shouldn't have got put in jail. But th- Man, prison was bad in the 50s. Yeah, I don't want to go to Stephen King prison in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% right. <laughs> um, so, uh, I want to get into how Frank Darabont made this movie. I- I'll talk a little bit at the onset about... Uh, so I saw this movie in high school and it was one of those times where I rented it knowing that it had some critical acclaim. It was like pre IMDB. Actually, my, my, my most uh, vivid memory of it was actually my dad renting it in 1994. And we had picked out, we, we did this thing at a video store where you got five movies for five days for $5. And it usually meant me and my three oldest brothers all got to pick out one movie. And my dad would pick out one movie to watch. And I just remember thinking, like, as an 11-year-old, like, you know, I had probably some great, like, Batman or Back to the Future, Indiana Jones or Superman movie I was renting. I don't remember what it was. And then, like, the other – my brothers had, like, similarly exciting movies. And then I saw this picture of, like, this guy in the rain and these two sad faces on the cover. And it was called The Shawshank Redemption. And I just remember being like, what – what happens when you're an adult that this is what you you're at the movie you're at the movie rental store all these amazing movies you're like I want to fucking watch the Shawshank Redemption like I have a very vivid memory of wondering why anyone would pick this movie to watch and then it wasn't until like six years later that I'm like oh yeah that one movie that my dad rented but I watched this not having knew I didn't know anything about the movie literally nothing I don't even think besides reading the back I didn't know the Stephen King. Uh, short story, obviously, which I which I read in preparation for this. Uh, and so I really was immediately sucked into this movie as like a 16 or 17 year old. But I remember specifically the ending legitimately like when he is not in his cell anymore. I was like, I could not figure out where he could have possibly gone. And the series of reveals that happens, I just remembered like taking my breath away and filling me with this sense of, oh, my God. 
this is like it's so this makes me feel so good all the good things that's happening to him all the bad things that's happening to the bad guys i just remember like even as a you know somewhat cynical 16 or 17 year old not the level of cynicism that you probably had at that age from our discussions but just being like oh this is this is the best movie like of course everyone would like this movie i just loved it so much and that feeling i had has never gone away. This is probably the 50 or 100th time I've watched it. I've yeah. never lost it, ever, in any watch. There wasn't a point where I turned on this movie. There wasn't a point where I, like, you know, couldn't, would be like, oh, this fucking movie, I'm not watching this again when it came on TV or I decided to pop it in or whatever else it was. And even now, and again, this is another great connection to It's a Wonderful Life, which I fell in love with at an either, even younger age. Like, watching it a couple nights ago, I was like, God, I love this movie. This is such a – even reading the book, I start crying at the end of the book. I was like, I was like, oh, my God, yeah. And the book is much less satisfying in a lot of different ways in the movie, which we'll talk about. But, um, God, this – I mean, like, this is just a – this is great. Like, this is so good. Yeah. And I don't have to spend too long on my story because it's pretty similar to yours. It's pretty similar to a lot of people's story, right? Like, I saw it as a kid on TV. Um it was one of those things where, like, I would yell in the other room to my dad or my mom or my sister or whatever. I'd be like, Shawshank's Good on. redempting happening. <laughs> Come check this out. Anyone wants to spend time with me, it'd be great. <laughs> Did you say The Paw Shake Redemption? A movie about a bunch of dogs breaking out of the pound? <laughs> hey, just because you guys are all older and have seen all the movies first doesn't mean we can't, like, hang out every once in a while. All right, I'll be in the other room. And basically, unless my dad was yep. working, he would come in the room and watch watch at least oh, a chunk nice. of it, right? Yeah. And like, um, it was also a movie that had a special status. And there's no, there's no word for this, but like, my family had this for very few movies. It was like this and like add family values or whatever. If we saw it was on TV and it was like more than ten minutes into the movie, my dad would be like, "Go grab the disc," because he was like, "I want to watch, I want to watch it from the beginning." Or grab the disc. Go grab the disc or whatever. And and so I have this beaten up clamshell. Remember when they had those ugly ass clamshells? Oh, yeah. Um, beaten up clamshell di- cardboard. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. This, this They snap yeah. into place. I got yeah. one. I got the Mortal Kombat one wet one so it disintegrated. Like, <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Why was it wet, Aaron? Why was oh. it wet, Aaron? Uh, I mean, Christopher <laughs> Lambert looks very sexy in the movie. <laughs> now, he's not on the cover, but I just pictured it while looking at the dragon. I guess. Um, so let's let's talk about the making of this movie. This is uh, like I didn't know that much about how this movie came to be. And I, I loved this story. Um, so that Frank Darabont, he was a screenwriter. Well, not a screenwriter. He was working. Uh, he was a he was a writer for like television and had done some stuff on movies. And he read different seasons, which was a nineteen eighty two uh, collection of four short stories that came out uh, uh, in well nineteen eighty two, as I said. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was Stephen King's attempt to say that he could write non horror uh, books at the time or non, non horror stories. Um, and so, uh, stand by me's in that called the body, uh, which, uh, at pupil, uh, which I've never seen the movie version of, although that still seems like a little bit of a horror story, even if it's more grounded in reality horror story. Uh, that is, uh, one that is firmly in the, uh, we'll never watch category, uh, because it is a, uh, Brian Singer movie. Uh, that's right. Um, that he, I believe he has been accused, credibly accused of, um, yeah, of uh, mis- misconduct on set. 
Yeah, uh, an offset from yeah. From yeah. But uh, yeah, so um, and Frank Darabont read this and he's like, "This is the best thing I've ever read." And he got a hold of Stephen King, um, and he offered him five thousand dollars for the rights to the story, which is like a, an adorable number. I mean, the Stephen King when you he 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 has this policy in general this obviously didn't, didn't apply to Frank Darabont where like if you're a college filmmaker or student filmmaker you can pay him $1 to for the rights to any of his stories the only like uh clause is that you can't like profit or make money so you could you could go if you were a college filmmaker you could go adapt the long walk or the shining or whatever you want to do you send Stephen King a dollar you can go and tour that around film festivals. You can't sell it. But if you want to do it as like a calling card, he will allow student filmmakers, school plays, those sort of things to put on whatever they want of his stories. And I, I find that amazing. Stephen King seems like a legitimately a generally good dude. And Frank Darabont approached him and he sold him the rights to this story for $5,000. He told him, I don't know how you're ever going to make a movie out of this. This just doesn't seem like a movie or something anyone would want to see. And Frank Darabont was like, amazed by that because he was like how could you not see this as a movie this seems like a classic frank capra story and i'm not just saying that darabont constantly said that it's it reminded him of it's a wonderful life and those movies that are like someone goes through, uh, protagonist goes through a tough challenging time and ends up clean on the other side which is explicitly said in the movie um and so he tried for a very hard time to kind of uh uh kick it around and never got around to writing the script until about 1989 when he spent basically a three-week period writing the script. And it became this very, you know, hitting most of the points of the book, but the book's about 113 pages long. Um, and he, you know, had written a, about a 144-page treatment or story of, of first draft of what he thought was the story that took a lot of those moments and added some other things. He thought the villains needed more comeuppance. Uh, uh, he added a couple other stories through there and uh, eventually started working uh, with uh, with Castle Rock, hilariously enough, which I don't think Castle Rock – as a, I didn't look this up or I didn't find this. So Castle Rock Entertainment is Rob Reiner's production company. They produce Seinfeld. Castle Rock is also the name of you know the Stephen King TV show and many of his um, books reference the city of Castle Rock. I'm assuming is there a relation to that? Did but yeah, it's based on the story the town from uh Stephen King's stories. It's part of his like overall like Stephen King universe. universe it's a fake yeah. town. Yeah. Um similar to Derry, Maine and, and, and such, there's there's sort of a uh a loose geography uh, of um areas yeah. that I believe uh, it was I think there's Salem's lot, Jerusalem's lot, there's Harrow Harrow? Yeah, Harlow? yeah, there's also Harlow like which there's like there's a city which what is it in the Bronx or the Brooklyn? There I'm in the I'm reading the Seventh Dark Tower book right now, so there's a lot of this like multi-universe Stephen King multi-universe convergence. But yes, uh, Rob Reiner had obviously directed uh The Body from different seasons in 1986. He named his production company, which we all knew, didn't have to look up prior to this. Um, literally prior, we didn't edit out something of us being confused by that point. Um, and he had done Misery in 1990. And so Stephen King kind of suggested like, hey, you should go to Rob Reiner. 
now that I've seen the script that you've written, which he thought was fantastic and wonderful, you should go to Rob Reiner and try to get it made. And so he did. Rob Reiner eventually um, got uh, agreed to make it for a certain amount of budget. They agreed to let Frank Darabont direct, which was a fight that he had to do because he was he had not directed a movie before, but he had a very clear vision. There was they thought this was going to be a huge prestige movie. Uh, in the same way, kind of Stand By Me was. There was a lot of courting, like the biggest names of Hollywood at the time. Everyone from Tom Hanks uh, to other people. Even um, they were trying to. They almost got Brad Pitt to play uh, William Sandler's character, I believe, or uh, one of one of. So, but before Brad Pitt became really big, so there was a lot of like uh, buzz around the script, and eventually uh, they settled on, on Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins for a variety of different reasons. Um, and one thing that's really like sweet in the end of this story is that uh, Stephen King never cashed the five thousand dollar check that Darabont paid him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has it's it hanging fra- he, had it, he had it, has it hanging and framed on his on his wall of like you know uh, kind of a uh, as as a, a memorial to a memorial sounds sadder than it is a testament to like this this passionate young guy who was like I see this movie this movie's going to be so great. And him selling it for like whatever, here's five thousand bucks, I guess, and you can own the rights to this story. And yeah, he it's it's so funny that he never cashed it, which I'm assuming means that like he's like, well, I originally thought maybe I'll cash it when the movie comes out, or like I don't want to take five thousand dollars from this struggling, you know, screenwriter. Um, but yeah, I, it's it it is a it's it's a great story, and it's it's usually considered the best Stephen King adaptation. I think the only one that usually comes close is maybe Misery is or Stand by Me. So it's kind of it's kind of in that perfect all like Rob Reiner affiliated like uh, mid eighties to mid nineties uh, Stephen King adaptations. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. This is absolutely on the list of, of like the top shelf gold standard. These are the ones that nobody yeah. argues with. Like The Shining is among film dorks probably the most well respected because it's kept its cool cachet and like Kubrick yeah. is still cool among like film dorks. Yeah. Um, whereas Frank Darabont doesn't carry the same sort of cachet. Um, yeah. I think uh, among horror dorks. Frank uh, Frank Darabont has absolutely some King level status, right? Like he adapted the Mist. And- yeah, which we cover. This is we've we've now done fifty percent of Frank Darabont movies, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, um, and you said you accidentally said uh, Memorial earlier. Frank Darabont is very much alive, but his career is pretty much dead. Um, yeah. We talked about this uh, during the Mist. During the Mist, yeah, he. Um, a- Apparently, apparently, um, when The Walking Dead was being made, apparently he was fucked out of a lot, a lot of money by AMC. He wasn't just fired from the show, but they like kind of cut off the money spout that he was owed, even though he directed the entire first season. And and basically, the look of the show, getting that cast of characters together, like everything yeah, that the, made The, the first Walking- season was good. First season I, was- I quit watch. I quit watching in the second season because of how bad it got immediately. Yeah, they AMC absolutely ruined that show. It could have been, it could have been pretty great, um, or at least I would have preferred Frank Darabont fucking it up to the hacks that they brought in. Um, but the AMC essentially, uh, legally speaking, fucked him out of a lot of money, uh, and they settled a lawsuit with him for $200 million. Yeah. Um, because walking dead was raking in cash. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is still bringing in cash, not raking in the way it was years ago. I think ago. there is there still a Walking Dead show on the air? I'm sure there is. They just wrapped the Rick and Michonne show. They just this. wrapped the um um Negan and Maggie show. There's at least two spinoffs that they just wrapped production on. Not even sure who those people are. I, I there's a there's a great Twitter joke that says no more um no more zodiac signs. You should now be identified by what season you quit watching The Walking Dead. <laughs> I think I was. I think I made it to whatever. Whenever Glenn died, five or six. I don't, um, I don't remember Glenn. As soon as I, as soon as Stephen, I really died, gave up quick. Like I was like, this show sucks. <laughs> like yeah. it was midway through second season. I was very done. It got it got like it it, it floated into fun pulpy horror territory for like part four and five, and then it just completely shit the bed again. Like it was like bad. It was like good, bad, back to being like good, but not as good as it was the first season. Frank Darabont was the the special sauce that made this zombie show actually interesting. Him. And the special effects, which t- in my mind, just saying something nice about a show I don't like very much. The special effects, I think, never dropped off. They were always insanely good looking. Um, did, some of the so best practical get, did, effects ever made. Does he have so much money? Did we? I don't know if we talked about. It. Does he have so much money that he doesn't really need to work, and he's sick of some of the challenges, or is he kind of blacklisted because the the. I know I know the log line was that he was difficult in suing the network, which I know a lot yes. of studios are like, not cool, dude. We yes, we can uh, screw you. You can't screw us. That's why we <laughs> as best also, as I know, it's sort of it's similar to even though Brian Fuller can still get stuff done, it's similar to the Brian Fuller story where like um a lot, a lot of people still remember the massive suit and how much the network had to pay out and are like, no, this guy's this guy's money hungry. He's greedy. We don't want to work <laughs> with someone like that. Um, Unless he's on our side. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the writer's strike. By the time this episode comes out, we'll still probably in the, be in the writer's strike. Yeah. Like, you'll never you'll never go broke betting uh, betting uh, for the, the greed of these producers, right? No. Um, but Anyways, we don't need to talk about it too much. I just want to say Frank Darabont is someone that I don't think got very much credit. Um, doesn't get very much credit in, in the modern day. But, like, like, he's made three projects that I, like, loved. And then a, and then a few other things that I, like, am really, really into. He worked on the Blob remake, right? Like, we covered yeah, that. Yeah, he did. He was, he was uh, one of the screenwriters for uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, too, which was really... Mm-hmm. Obviously, oh. one of the better ones of the of a generally good series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's he's just someone that I think, like among horror dorks, has a bit more cachet because he not only did he do well by um, the Mist, he did well by uh, other Stephen King stuff. Um, well, I think is, you know both of the, and also I think he improved both of them. Like the Shawshank is a really great, uh, uh, you know, no- novella. Same with the Mist. I think both the movie version, which is um, rarely the case for any book, let alone Stephen King adaptations, which there's just a slew of terrible movies and and pretty good to great books that have been uh, adapted. And, you know, he's directed two that I think the movies are far and away take all the best parts and make everything a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, both have better endings um, as well. Uh, I so I almost rewatched the Green Mile for this. I've never read the Green Mile book or series of books, um, and I saw the Green Mile in theaters after I'd seen Shawshank Redemption, and I remember being like, "Oh, that was good," but you know, 
it's very similar to the Shawshank Redemption. And if I'm ever going to rewatch one of these, it'll probably be the Shawshank Redemption. I've never seen it again. Uh, but I almost rewatched it because it's not like I had negative memories of the movie or didn't like it. It just was like, oh, yeah, good. Kind of lesser. And it longer. So I guess it's less I'll watch the Shawshank Redemption. It, it has yeah, a, well, it's sadder. It's way sadder. <laughs> yeah. um, it doesn't have it doesn't have the same sense of um, dark sense of humor that Shawshank has at times. Because that's another thing that's fun about the movie is that like Red is Red is like um, there's a lot of crazy capers, and Red is sarcastic and he cracks jokes yeah. at the wrong time, and he does what Stephen King does where he like imbues a little bit of dark comedy in, in in moments which like either makes you laugh or just completely throws you off it works yeah. either way yeah um and uh but like in the green mile like there's not much to rest your hat on tom hanks is uh grimly depressed almost the entire movie um he has kidney stones right like it's just yeah a, it's a three-hour movie about a man who's like it hurts one ip which you know a long time to sit with something that's the worst feeling ever <laughs> yeah it, the, the movie successfully convinced me that i didn't want to live on death row um and and just for all the listeners at home you haven't yet i haven't yet not i mean well. maybe when this comes out we'll do Sorry, like yeah. one of those updates we'll be like hey As of june 1st 2023 yeah yeah so i mean you've 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 lived up to that have you did you read that book have you seen it in a while do you like what's your, I- what's your green mile I have never like, read the Green Mile book. Uh, I've obviously read different seasons because we talked about that before. But um, yeah. uh, the the uh, unfortunately, it's been long enough with different seasons that like I remember the ones that were movies. <laughs> I don't remember the fourth story. I think it's called The Breathing Method. Um, it is. Yep. I that one. I think Scott Derrickson is talking about adapting it. Maybe you know completing the the four seasons, right. but. Um, Basically, I, I haven't read the Green Mile story. I would love to cover that on the show. I joked about yeah. next summer doing, um, <laughs> doing oh, some of these sequel. movies weird sequels. Yeah, like yeah. Casino would be a highlight for Green, us. Green Mile, yeah, Green we don't Mile have to do a highlight for us. Blue Ducks Two would be a, a low light. Yeah, I would do. I would do Choke, which was an attempt to follow up on Fight Club, make more Chuck Palahniuk stuff out there. Wasn't there a wasn't there a Scar- oh no there's a scarface canceled video game we can watch the 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 released uh youtube cutscenes i bet there's a straight to video scarface sequel i would bet <laughs> so much money there's and a straight to video mid- carlitos way sequel or prequel I, there's got there's got to be something <laughs> uh uh <laughs> scarface related um let's talk uh let's talk a little bit about the ending so yeah. um the book's ending ends with uh, kind of the narration of Red, very similar to the movie where he's like, I hope I get to Mexico. I hope I, the the ocean's as beautiful as, as I have. It's get get busy living, uh, you know, or get busy dying. And the, and the book ends. You don't know if they're reunited. You actually don't even really know in the book whether Andy got there for sure. In this, the movie makes it explicit because um, – what he finds in the case under the rock is like a specific note and money left for him. That's not what he finds in the in the book. He finds like a, a map or something that shows him where he's going. Um, so it's it's not even explicit like where he where he made it out to uh, as much in the book. Um, and so it, when Frank Darabout shot it, he shot it the same way. 
And test audiences, the studio heads, everyone was like, man, it would be really nice if you can see those two actually uh, see each other again. And he was like, no, no, that's not what the that's not what it's about. You, you, you just don't know. You know, you, you know, he escaped in my version. You know, he got out. You know, he at least made a run for Mexico of where he crosses the border and everything like that. Um, but like, it's gotta be the same thing. You just don't know. You gotta take one step, one foot forward, you know, get busy, get busy living. That's what Red's doing. And they're like, just shoot it. (laughs) They said, we'd like you to shoot it that way. We'd like you to edit together. You will still have final cut about whether you want to have it in the movie, which is very rare. Like the studio is essentially saying these people are gone, get them back for two days, shoot an ending with them being reunited, however you want. But we are not going to make you put that in the movie. It also sounds like they had – that Rob Reiner and him had a really good relationship and Rob Reiner yep. was sort of mentoring him a little bit. And, and yep. it sounds like Rob Reiner was he, – he had trust in Rob Reiner to not fuck him later on this. And and Darabont had trust that they were going to – if he went and did this and shot it and wrote it and put it in, that they weren't going to say – that he would still have final decision about whether to include it into the movie, which, again, is such a great, like, relationship where they're like, look, we do think it's missing this. And Rob Reiner obviously has better instincts than just a normal suit at a studio head or, you know, or a suit at a studio. But he's also like, hey, I'm going to let you decide. So they go shoot it, which is why it's funny, like, Tim Robbins has a little bit of a different haircut, which he it looks, it looks different, which, again, I'm sure he got a haircut in the years – since he left prison, but yeah, I think um, it was like eight years or something. Red, yeah. Red, felt, Red uh, served more of a sentence. Yes, he did. Um, but they do this scene of him coming over, basically like the camera comes over a dune. Uh, Andy's working on a boat. Red's walking up to them. The camera pans out. You see them embrace. You don't even get to hear them say hi to each other, and the credits start playing. And and Frank Darabont was like, "Oh, uh, yeah, this works." Let's let's do this. You're agreed. Like this is this is the Capra ending. Like Capra didn't leave a mystery about whether George Bailey's family, whether he was going to prison or not. But thank God he loves his family. You know, you get that big cathartic moment that you've kind of been waiting two and a half hours for. And uh, yeah, I, I I love that story because it just feels like such a good natured version of the type of studio like the ending's not working. We need to do this. And it was right. It was 100 percent right. I'm so glad they didn't leave the book ending because thankfully, even when I was reading the book, I was like imagining them being reunited. That scene is so great. It's 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 not in your face. They don't go, where have you been, buddy? Like, you know, they don't have a long talk. They just have a like a pulled back embrace and it's over and it's it's a great studio note and a, and a great change to the book and the whole movie is kind of about hope and it's a long yeah. movie and yeah. like to have to have uh one of these final characters got to get ground down by reality even more it's just kind of like it's just kind of like we've been holding on for two and a half hours for something good to happen, like something really good to happen, right? Um, we've been eking out these small victories. Like let's let's let them have the the legendary ending. Also, like 
This is this is one of those movies where because it takes place when it does, I believe the entire fraud thing. That like the oh, fraud yeah. thing. I absolutely believe that Andy Dufresne could get away with all of this shit back then. I yeah. absolutely believe that Andy Dufresne could, could have enough of a lead as like a generic white guy in a suit that yep. <laughs> that he could like go back and like leave the map and like or the you know the map the 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 note and then go cash out all those banks and then go to Mexico and that yeah. like I absolutely believe that he had enough lead time before crossing the border. Honestly, I I believe that everyone who's in prison should be because it was so easy to get away from, with crimes back then. <laughs> there was <laughs> fundamentally no evidence <laughs> or or any sort of idea of blood work or anything. So literally everyone that's in prison just deserves it on the nature that they were not able to uh, to somehow not prove their case. Although I guess that's the joke too, because they just were like, well, we have no evidence and we have no way to investigate. Probably that guy did it <laughs> because he was angry at his wife. So he probably, he probably killed that person. Um, I also don't, I also don't remember. I, I, I forgot since the last time I watched it, I remember it being more ambiguous whether or not Andy Dufresne killed his wife. Oh, and I think that's just, just something they play with for the first act. I think they pretty quickly, let you off the hook so you can root for him a little bit more pretty quickly. I remember as a kid being like, oh, this is this is complicated because he might be a murderer. And but like, hasn't he suffered enough? You know, yeah. like, but like, I think the movie is sincere enough that it's yeah. not fucking with you like that. Yeah, no, it's it's not. And the book also essentially explicitly says that he didn't didn't do it. The other two just changes I would call out is um, and again, both. Uh, are hitting like some points that Stephen King did, but hit it further. So um, in the book, there's a lot of different wardens, the warden uh, and the scam and all that stuff is there, but essentially um, Andy, um, he, he has not been stealing money from the war, like that whole scam with the warden's money. He's actually been, has another friend who's been investing money outside of, jail and he assumes that identity so he's not taking the warden's um money like and the warden money. doesn't get arrested yeah and the, war- the warden doesn't get arrested or kill himself or anything like that so there's something about like the warden you know lost andy and he was angry about that for his entire life that he was outsmarted by this prison break but that kind of poetic justice that happens in the movie which is so, like it feels so it's kind of insane that that's not in the book because it seems like such an easy point to connect. And the fact that like he got his – like there's a scam that he's helping the warden run, but his money is actually from previous investments before jail that he had a friend manage and he had to figure out how to get that identity. Like it's it's much more perfect symmetry. And then the other thing is that I've the guy who knows that he's innocent – the warden bribes him, doesn't kill him. He gives him – he sends him to a cushy jail um, away um, instead of, like, killing him for testifying. So Andy feels a little bit betrayed that the warden literally bribed this person uh, to get – to go to a comfy jail as opposed to Shawshank as opposed to, like, the warden killing him to remove the evidence. So and it's like and the thing are- of, like make- – yeah, making the warden more evil and having more comeuppance, which works. Like I said, those are kind of the three big changes, and uh, they work so well, both to make you hate the warden, feel satisfied when it happens, and then gives you a great big moment at the end. 
Yeah, and as we've discussed, Frank Darabont like described this as sort of like a Frank Capra story, a tall tale. Um, I think making the story a little bigger than the book because the yeah. book the book is like a little bit more the novella is a little bit more believable. Like, yeah, it is more believable that Andy didn't completely fuck the warden on everything, including his shoes. Yeah. It's more believable that he just like he just like got out and he still yeah. had money on the side because he was a yeah. banker. Yeah. And it's more it's more believable that there would be a series of wardens who, you know, he had differing relationships with because it's like a hard job and it chews people up and you don't. Yeah. Te- you don't technically get into the role until later in your life. So, you know, the idea of someone being the warden for 30 or 40 years is like crazy. Um, no. So, yeah, I uh, yeah, I. I think the changes are necessary to make the movie he was trying to make. But this is like I was saying, like there are people who are, there are people that prefer the missed novella and they don't like the changes, the special ending that Frank Darabont put in. And um, I think those people are a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They're a little, little, little out there. Um, Yeah. The ending in the book is just, if you found the tape, I'm just going to keep traveling, which is like, I, I do think Darabont has figured out, like, hey, Stephen King has a – I'm not saying the the ending to Shawshank or uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is not bad, but Frank Darabont figured out how to make it better. And I think the same On thing is very especially. true of, of The Mist, right? Like, but, yeah, oh, I th- yeah. I, I think that this era, though, like, this is a movie that, like, Shining fans, like – that's actually a fairly divisive movie about among uh, Stephen King sh- fans. Among Stephen King fans, Shining is actually fairly divisive. Um, less and less people are willing to admit that they like the miniseries, which is good. Um, I have met people who say they like the Doctor Sleep movie more than they like uh, the Kubrick movie, which is, I think, fine. Like yeah, I, Doctor, Doctor Sleep is is great. It's a great movie. I don't personally think it's better than the original Shining, but like, I think it's up there. Um, it's very hard for any movie to compete with that level of, of greatness. Shawshank is like the crowd pleaser. There's a reason why this is on dorm room walls. There's a reason yeah. why. Yeah, I that think- poster with his arms back. It's like, it all, you know, it represents that kind of like college idea of freedom. Like, yeah. you know, in some ways, like getting out of your parents' house and going to the dorm is a taste of freedom. It's not surprising that that poster adorned a lot of walls. Yeah. The idea, and it's, it's an inspiring movie because it's, it's like, if not just about if you don't lose hope, but it's like, if you use everything at your disposal, like you can liberate yourself from any prison, right? It's, it's an inspiring movie from, from that sort of broad perspective as well. I think a lot of people watching it, especially what's funny is the first time I watched it as an adult and I don't particularly feel trapped in my existence or whatever. Um, But the idea of, Doing a little bit of just like legal, um, just a little bit of legal, um, you know, I don't want to call it like hustling, but like, because I'm not asking, I'm not like talking about driving for Uber on the side or something like the idea of like doing like making a good deal on something or finding something cool and selling it for a lot more than it's worth or whatever. And then getting to kind of just be like, all right, I'm packing up my life and I'm moving to Mexico. Like it's a it's an appealing idea as an adult who doesn't feel trapped in their existence, but also doesn't want to keep yeah. working, working in an office forever. I'm not going to leave my family, but also the idea of like, hey, what if I had $600,000 and just was on the beach from now on? Yeah. <laughs> like, my idea is less, yeah, my idea is less yeah. like I want to get involved in crypto. My idea is more along the lines of like, what if I found a cool spoon in my house that was worth $600,000? Peter, Shawshank, NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you own a piece of it then. Do you remember that clip of someone explaining NFTs to Quentin Tarantino and then like explaining like how the blockchain works and that like so you could sell that picture like that that dorm room picture of Pulp Fiction like of people shooting that that you someone could own that and then you could sell that and he's like oh that's like this guy like went uh nuts and it's a very funny clip and I I the only sad part is is that I can't tell if Quentin Tarantino is going oh that's interesting in the way that like uh, uh first dates try to leave men who talk about what happened really happened on 9 11 uh, oh that's really interesting um or whether he was like oh that is really interesting <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah i've been stuck in the l at 2 a.m with someone who uh has a lot of interesting conspiracy theories and i'm like you know what i don't know what's in your backpack so i'm just gonna say wow well that is just that is, I'd never thought about, you know, I'm going to go home and do some Googling. No, don't give me the pamphlet. I will remember that 40 character URL you just gave me. Absolutely. I I, to, I probably told the story before we can say it and then let's go to break. I visited a buddy of mine in San Diego, not you, but it was before you lived there or before I knew you, in like 2011 for like five days. And I don't remember that we went to bars, went to beaches, went to restaurants, my two very like clear memories of like oh I remember doing this was going to see the Muppets in theaters, uh, which was just because I have a tendency to remember when I see movies first, and being at this great sushi place in downtown. Don't even I don't no idea what the name. Don't ask me. It was single chairs, and in the table behind us there was a first date where someone explained what really happened on nine eleven. We were done eating. We stood there for an hour. Because it was like this guy just kept going on and on and on and on. And he was getting no positive feedback back. Just like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I never thought of it that way. And every time this poor, poor lady said that, he took it as a legitimate interest to like, would you like to know more Starship Troopers style and kept going on. It was, I mean, I felt terrible for this. I, what else are you going to do? Someone like that could fucking probably has dynamite at home. Like, <laughs> you just try to get through it and then hopefully like change your address in life and move away forever. But it, like we, we were an hour late for meeting some of his friends because we just were like, I, I want to stay. Because they were like, they were like, you know, two they were like half a foot away from us. Like you couldn't help but over here. But we they had to someone must have figured it out because we we just stopped talking to each other. We looked like two friends or maybe a couple who had just gone through a very big fight because we were not saying anything to each other and not eating and just like we don't need the check. We are good. We're gonna stick around here for a little bit. Uh it was it was amazing. Uh, uh that is so funny. There is I I have you know like there's a banality to like a couple arguing near you that's just kind of grim. You're like, oh, that's just this. I, yeah. That's just not, you know, that's not that interesting. But somebody who's genuinely, genuinely uh, unaware of the fact that the thing that they spend probably six hours a day on um, is uh, a mental illness is yeah. <laughs> somewhat interesting. Like you, you, you can't help but look away. I did when I, I, I when I, I worked for I worked in politics. Um, we got mailed a packet that I handled with rubber gloves that was entirely about how robots are going to take over the world. Mm-hmm. It was fully sincere, um, and I was told that this guy makes these packets by hand and he mails them 
every six to nine months to different politicians and some and, and we just our number came up right yeah. and uh i sat and read this thing for like an hour and a half and didn't realize that i had just like blown an entire friday yeah. afternoon i was like oh shit i have to send some emails out and stuff like um it was it is there's there's a moment when your brain clicks over and you're like well now i want to see what's inside your brain right now <laughs> yeah like oh it's kind of like, you it know, goes from like, ew, get it away from me to like, okay, but like, what do you say? We, I mean, we talked about in the show when we did Behind the Curve, that the second I was done with Behind the Curve, that references this, these YouTube video, this giant YouTube series created with all the evidence of a flat earth. I went and watched every single one because I was like, what's the evidence? Like, what is, what is the compelling evidence that everyone talks about? It is just like, my own, but there was just something like, it felt like something out of a TV show of like someone getting so like anyone should have been able to go and go this person does not want to hear more like this this person absolutely and just going on and on and on never letting this person speak besides saying that's interesting and literally just like and i'm sure that that self-deluded terrible man walked out of that date and was like she gets me she was so interested and listened to everything like if i i would give a lot of money to find out what happened uh and hoping that it wasn't anything terrible but like uh like what did he go home thinking and how quickly did she delete her you know tinder profile and, and scrub all join join a nunnery yeah whatever it was i'm sure it was not quick enough she was doing it in the uber on the way home um, yeah uber, but with that, she changed the uber address halfway through to the witness protection program yeah, i'm sure just take me right to the yeah. like don't even don't even i don't even need to get anything i can i can get new things i can, I can get about, a new cat I just heard 30 minutes about Tower 7. Honestly, fucking put me in a shuttle and launch me into space. Like, I don't <laughs> want to ever hear anything about this planet again. Um, uh, do, you have, do you guys have communities in, like, the the Arctic? Yeah. How deep underwater? Do you have the Sea Lab 2021? <laughs> Can I live in a Sea Lab? Please, um, uh, Are you yeah. Any biodomes coming up that you need me to check out? Literally anything. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, and also I will need to interview anybody else that's in the biodome with me. Just say, do you find anything about nine eleven interesting? <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything the normal stuff. Um, but uh, yeah. So speaking of someone who was caught in a prison of a first date for a couple hours, let's talk about these guys. They were stuck in a prison for much longer with much less conspiracy theories. <laughs> Shawshank starts with uh, Andy Dufresne gets convicted of murdering his wife. Uh, I, I love all the little trial lines. They do. This is from directly from the 
the novella, but I love like the where he's like, pretty convenient the gun didn't turn up, and he's like, actually, as an innocent man, I I find it decidedly unconvenient, inconvenient yeah. that the something that could that prove my innocence has not been found. Um, but yeah, you know, the thing is, like, Andy was not a good husband, and he was uh, kind of a ship. His wife, he was a banker, cared more about work. He was a heavy drinker. When his found out his wife was cheating um, on him, he went outside in his car with a gun, um, left bullets on the ground, and then they show up dead. So, like, I, I do think, like, beyond the fact of, like, what his sentence should be under those circumstances and everything about the jail stuff, like, I actually do think that this isn't one of those obvious frame johns. People think that he's guilty because all the evidence would point to him being guilty, not some random person just happened who's a thief made their way and then shot both of them that same night. So it's one of those like really great like Stephen King, Twilight Zone like, you know, picture a man. (laughs) Wrong place, wrong time. Uh, And it's also one of those things where it's also one of those things where um, because cops at the time like Cops still just, like, railroad people all the time, obviously. But because cops at the time just had preconceived notions about, um, you know, if we don't have a suspect, it's the husband, right? Yeah. Um, And a lot of cops still carry those those notions, right? Um, I think even if he had been at at work and no one you know he didn't have an alibi but he was like at the office all night completely sober because he was like well my wife left me better better lean into work um he still would have ended up in prison like that's the yeah. that's the part of the story that like i always find in- interesting is like it he gets railroaded in such a way that like even if they had found his gun they would have been like well your yeah. gun well, how do you how do we know you didn't have two guns yeah like, yeah um and i do think though, cabin, an alibi right? being like Hey, what were you doing the night of your wife's murder outside her outside her lover's house with a gun drinking? I'm, <laughs> I'm still like, not a good alibi, but I, I am still wondering like how much of that he had to share and how much of that was him being under oath and refusing to lie. Yeah, I mean that's one of the great things about like Andy as you get to know him. Like he's he has a very clear sense of morality and everything else. And so much so that he has a very Old Testament sense of morality that like later on in the movie, he kind of talks about like, I didn't, I may have not have pulled the trigger, but I killed my wife. I did all these things. And that's also why like he kind of accepted his fate like in Mm -hmm. prison. And he wasn't like, I'm innocent, I'm innocent because he does feel like he may have not like he says i did, may not pull the trigger but i am definitely guilty and so like he is taking on life at shawshank a little bit as someone who may not have done the murder but deserves the punishment and uh i i like red's talk about like dissuading him of like you you may have been a shitty husband that's a crime you've done your time and more you didn't murder them like you you weren't the cause of this horrible crime and and like there's no reason to put that guilt on yourself as well uh but anyways uh honestly honestly the way we're talking about this like i feel like we can kind of talk about this movie out of order yeah like i think we can kind of chase themes much like if you watched it over a a a long weekend every time it showed up on tnt exactly (laughs) um that conversation that andy has where he's kind of admitting his guilt to his his 20-year friend at that point um is 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 the first time Red ever saw him truly give up hope? Yeah. Um, that like he Red said the first few years where he was being essentially either beaten or raped 
like pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, he said those were really tough on Andy, but like the only time you ever saw him truly without hope is after um, his yep. chance at getting out and, and having his name redeemed uh, is, 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 is taken from him uh, with the death of Tommy, um, who's sort of like the young guy he takes under his wing. Um, yep. So after Tommy is, is not able to like clear his name and Tommy is murdered by the guards. Um, and the warden essentially loses. says to him, like, you're never quitting this. You're never leaving. I will you're continue gonna- to. I will, I will fucking burn your books and destroy your life. And you will like, if you don't like you're going to, every day of your life is going to be a misery. Yeah. And, um, Tommy's in the the hole for two months. Yeah. Andy's in the hole for two months, which, um, is torture. Um, it's something that a lot of states are trying to reform. Having people in shoe is something that people are, um, states are trying to reform, but it's going very slowly because prisons are essentially like, yeah, he was only in there for three days, and then they checked the records, and they didn't feed him for six days, and they're like, "Yeah, like people are people are dying in solitary, um, like in the past few months. Like this is still a torture that we inflict on people." Yeah, and like really quick bullet point there, the movie does have a lot to say about the like how terrible our prisons, are, how basically these people are free to do whatever they want to prisoners. It. Every prison movie and TV show that is very popular depicts prisons this way. Everyone kind of accepts that this is what prison is. Like, prisoners brutalizing each other, guards looking the other way, this idea of bribery. And, like, everyone – and I I definitely mean everyone facetiously, but, like, fundamentally everyone that matters, Democrat, conservative, they don't care. Like, we have – we have uh, – obviously, like, there's a much better writing than we're going to go in in this next two-minute rants and movies and everything else made about it. But, like, we have essentially – and especially as we've, like, used it to uh, target specifically people of color for drug charges and everything else, we have literally created a, a, a system of ways to essentially torture people, use them as slave labor. And, like, it's not even a secret. It's just, like – yeah, but they our, did a our, our vice president made made uh, quite a career on getting uh, inmate inmate slave labor in California. Yeah, I mean, so it is. Uh, we we as a country have a terrible sense of like what prisoners and even like when prison movies like Shawshank are about like how people are innocent and what a great guy he is. Like that happens constantly. Half murders aren't solved so many times with like the innocence project. We get the wrong people. There are literally uh, people and in positions of power, governors, attorney generals, uh, uh, judges who actually think that even if they convict the wrong person too bad, he should stay in jail. Even if it's demonstrably proven, It, it is a like just a brutal system that should be along with the police abolished. All the way around. And we don't what's even always- have people that – we don't – We it's not even to say we do. We don't have prison abolitions, abolitionists no. in, in Congress. We're not even – we're no. not even saying that. I, I would settle for the Swedish model, right? Yeah. Like, I would settle for the Swedish model, which is about, like, basically, like, uh, ascertaining how people can um, rejoin communities and having yep. individual care. It's not focused on finding every way to cut corners in terms of cost for their care and treating them like animals and encouraging them to... Make money off them, too. 
Yeah, encouraging recidivism, encouraging them to, while they're in prison, one of the only ways you can get by is committing other crimes. Like, the there's 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 just, like, the Scandinavian version of, even the Scandinavian version of, of prisons even is, like, considered, like, to, like, politically a dead end for people. And that's still a prison that you send people to when they go away. Right. Like, yeah, the idea of prison abolition is like a hundred years away from being a, a, a concept. Yeah. And that's because in, in this country and other countries, but like it's the Willie Horton thing. It's if you do anything to make life better or prison or reform our prison system, you are weak on crime. Same thing with when any time anyone talks about, hey, maybe we should look at how we're uh, allocating police dollars and like how we could use it. Nope, sorry. You want murderers to kill you and that works every time and it's the only reason like I'm calling it out specifically with this too is that obviously the movie's calling out some of that. The book's calling out some of that. But like all of our prison media is about how Brutally, everyone is treated, how there's innocent people. And even if they're not innocent, does anyone watch this movie and go, you know what? I actually think that Red should stay in prison. <laughs> I actually think more bad things should be happening to him. And this is a person who murdered two people. Like, that is why he's in prison. He murdered two people when he's 20. No one watches this and goes, yeah, but he sh- – I mean, he murdered someone, so you should say they recognize him as a human being and these other characters as human beings who are deserving a lot more respect and the, the length of the sentence, the brutalization, everything that happens is terrible. And we as a society go, we love the Shawshank Redemption and then we go, if we cut even one whip from – or chain or anything else, I fucking – it's the worst thing that you could do. You're murdering your children and it's like just a huge disconnect from the pop culture about something that everyone loves and accepts. Like every, I mean, I'm sure whether you sit down Paul Ryan or um, you know, people on Fox News or Newsmax, they'd all say they love the Shawshank Redemption. The idea that none of that carries over at all into a recognition of like their political beliefs is, is – is, not surprising, but kind of surprising. Like, Shawshank is not known as a lefty anti-prison movie. <laughs> but it's, it's a movie where it's a movie where uh, Red passes his parole meeting not by putting up a good, yeah. pretty face. Like, I'll be, the, I'll be the best citizen ever. I'll be the best baby citizen ever. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He actually does that in an earlier one and it gets rejected immediately. Red gets let out when they're clear that they have broken his spirit. Red 100%. gets let out when they're like, we Doesn't no longer have anymore. a... Yep. We lo- no longer have someone who's dangerous because we've essentially neutered their soul. Yeah. <laughs> like, that—that that is when they, they, they allow Red to leave um, of his own accord. Yeah. Like, the system... The system not only does... And then... It has a lot of the whole Brooks story is about like yeah. essentially like kicking people out. There's no social safety net for him. He essentially has to earn immediately. He's in this depressing halfway home and is completely alone. There's no social workers to help him actually adjust to society. It's just and would, ra- and would rather kill. There's a part of him that would rather kill someone and stay in prison than have to go into a world he no longer recognizes. But he's too gentle of a man. Brooks is yep. too gentle of a man to allow such a thing. And he's just like, I, I couldn't have hurt. I couldn't have hurt my friend in prison. I can't hurt anybody out here. I'm daydreaming about shooting my manager because that guy's an <laughs> asshole. But like, you know, yeah. 
he, he basically it's basically like uh one of the it's it's basically like a lot of people are like hate their boss right and it's it's like he's like no but i'm not gonna do anything about it but yeah. my time here is done um yeah let's talk about the brooks section of this movie so this is another yeah. episode in the movie it happens earlier so about halfway through yeah yeah brooks is a character that has an episode in the movie where you get introduced to him early on he's the bird man of shawshank he feeds these baby birds. Um, and he, um, the bird, he has, he's way healthier, uh, in terms of, uh, his mental state than the Birdman of Alcatraz. Yeah. Um, Birdman of Alcatraz was, uh, not a good person. Um, or the but, Birdman from that, uh, or Michael Keaton is Birdman. Oh, yeah. Definitely better, not. Better than that. He's mean, he's mean to critics. No healthy man could do that. No. Um, Critics but, don't know uh, about art. <laughs> Maybe uh, create something, you asshole. <laughs> it's like a three-hour one-take <laughs> one take movie about how I don't like some of my reviews. <laughs> what, a, what a dickhead. Uh, I, have, I have a solution for this movie. A bad review. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, Brooks is like, I think the thing that you can't take out of this movie. Like, I think the, I think this yeah. is the anchoring point of the movie. This is the thing that made this movie so, it's hit, it's the Morgan Freeman's voice in this movie. And it's, it's, it's the Brooks, uh, the Brooks stuff. Because. Well, you okay. also need to understand the stakes for Morgan Freeman when he leaves. Yes, exactly. And like, the stakes for pri- the prisoners when they leave in general. Yeah, so James Whitmore gave a just a, an amazing. There's so many people in this movie. Like I would give an. I don't generally give a shit about Oscars, as we can probably tell. But like, I would love for him to have gotten an Oscar for this movie. Like, yeah. Um, but he, uh, James Whitmore, um, who plays Brooks, um, gives this this gentle performance with like so much dignity like he's such a kind person um and then the first time you ever see him act like a prison inmate is he's holding a neck to uh william sadler's neck and he you know he's not actually gonna hurt him but like you can see him distraught in such a way you're like what is he gonna do right like um and that voiceover swap, which we talked about how voiceover swaps can be very powerful in Goodfellas, yeah. that voiceover swap where all of a sudden Brooks is reading a letter and you have the sense of impending doom just in the tone of his voice, like yeah. things are not going well. Um, that moment is true, tr- truly like some of the hard, like the hardest I've ever like felt like punched in the gut by a movie. Yeah. Like, so Brooks dies by suicide. Um, Brooks uh, carves. Brooks was here in that halfway home uh, wall. Yeah. Um, or you know above the above the ceiling rafter. Yeah. And uh, and and uh, jumps through the jumps through the noose. And it's this story that like a lot of people identify with for a lot of reasons. Like you think about like yourself in that age and how you'll, you'll need so much help and like the idea of not getting it. You think about like, what if your grandparents were on their own? You think about how many, and then you think about like people that get kicked out of prison and just like, don't know what to do with their bodies or their hands. And like, what if they can't, Yeah, he's got arthritis. He has to work bagging groceries. Like, you know, he, uh, he goes and watches birds and he's all alone. Everyone in his life is gone. 
Um, you know, he's, he doesn't I think even he's have like, his bird because he wasn't allowed to bring his bird with him, yeah, right? He had to set his bird free, and then he goes hoping that the bird will show up and be fed by him. But he never does. This is the sort of thing that could be cloying if the if every performance in this movie wasn't dialed in perfectly. It right. also has um, – I should have looked who did the music for this. It also has Field of Dreams soundtrack during this moment, uh, which sounds both magical and very sad in the moment. It's like those kind of like piano notes that keep hitting. And it is just – it is a f- feeling of ominousness of something that's going to happen. Field of Dreams uses a similar like musical – cue to indicate something magical is about to happen and i feel like probably not intentionally but it's what it reminded me of like inverses like something's about to happen i doubt it's going to be a bunch of baseball players emerging uh, into the halfway house to say brooks it is going to be something bad but it's that anticipatory musical cue that really like gets under your skin yeah and and um there's this great book uh, did you ever read the Forever War, or did I just? Yeah, you just, you bought it for awesome. me. Awesome, I read it, awesome. Yeah. I, I I knew you'd like that book. Um, it I always think of that as a really great metaphor for how the military yeah. and prison and these 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 structures that like you know can take the youngest of young men and then take them away from their families for for crucial years. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I'm saying it's it, it's what it made me think of is is the Forever War. Um, yeah, we're not. I mean, that is a great book, and they emerge, and nothing matters from when they left anymore because everything's kind of been overwritten. And yeah. it's it's a form of time travel. Like being in prison is like a form of time travel, right? But it's the shittiest form of time travel where you get picked up and dropped in the future after muscling your way through existence for decades, and all of your good years are gone. And it's not that they slipped between your fingers. It's that before they were allowed to even be in your hands, someone grabbed them from you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And like all of us can relate to the idea that the years slip away. Right. Like that's one of the reasons the Brooke plot is so powerful, but imagine if those years were not just, didn't just slip away. Those years were ripped from your hands. Like, yeah, I mean, that that is like the, you know, as someone who recently turned 40, that is the harrowing thing. Like the idea that like, I think that is something that as you get older and you watch this movie, it does hit a little bit different as the kids say. Uh, The kids now being my age that said that. Um, But it like when you're like, man, 18, wow, it'd be crazy if I just like lost 20 years of my life in a box but you haven't even lived 20 years of your life like that every year seems like a story when you're that age right like i remember all these different bullet points and then all of a sudden you know you turn you know 30s or 40s or stuff like that and you realize like wow like it's already going by fast enough the idea that like i have some memories when i was a kid i was plucked away from society and now i have a couple years you know like brooks probably has like five years 10 years tops and it's like what am i what are these five ten years left i've just that's it it's a it's a completely wasted life yeah yeah ab- ab- absolutely it's um it's um he has been so alienated from the basic world that he's like what am i giving up by dying like it's 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 such a it's such a grim plot but it is about someone who gives up hope he gives gives up the possibility 
I I do think we're getting better. And it's sort of like at that point in the movie, we see it almost because of his age. We see it almost as like an act of mercy, right? Like a mercy that he gives him to himself. Um, And I would never, you know, endorse that sort of thing. Like I would more endorse that we make uh, societal changes that, um, (laughs) that, uh, that uh, we make I mean, societal the, like, changes that make it so people have something to look forward to getting out of prison. But like, I I am saying that like uh, you anybody watching this movie can understand why Brooks does it. You're not like, oh no, you have so much to live yeah. for. You're like, you were robbed of everything that you. Yeah. What are the policy? What is the road ahead? Well, it's also saying even if you agree what Brooks did should put him away or be removed from society in whatever model, probably not a Shawshank model, but whatever model you want. Also, you can recognize, like, they, they could have let him out 20 years earlier. Like, I guarantee – we saw him at the beginning of this movie. He was not a danger at the beginning of this movie and he gets out, you know, 15, 20 years after. Like, why would they – why would they just not let him out? It's just because that's not how the system works. I do think, though, those halfway house people, like, are – the whole system is torture. I think something that's just incredibly cruel is, like, it is the 60s. Put a TV in that room. Like these people coming out of coming out of jail, like you, they they got to see the same movie every once in a while. They get a TV just playing stuff all the time. I guarantee they are fine. Like Brooks just sticks around. They're gonna be amazed by that thing. Are you kidding me? Like it. Like I understand. Like TVs were more expensive back then, but I mean that just seems like a huge miss. Like. That's going to keep those old people coming out of prison entertained for a very long time. And I I think... What if know, at the end of the letter he's like... What if at the end of the letter he's like, there's this guy Nixon on TV and I, I think he has a pretty interesting strategy about... You know, no, Brooks, no! <laughs> they didn't get to the 70s. It would be more like... Uh, I was feeling pretty down today, but that, have you seen this show, The Honeymooners? This, <laughs> this abusive husband is hilarious. <laughs> Guys, you're really missing out. Uh, I'm going to sit here and watch this thing till yeah. my heart goes out. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a mistake. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Brooks plot is centered to the movie because of that sense of hope, right? Like, n- there's a moment in the movie when you, when you realize the movie is mirroring shots from Brooks being oh yeah let out. Um, but for Red, which really quickly, anybody that's seen this movie knows, how, knows that Morgan Freeman is like the, like, he is the, the, the like, this is a movie that Morgan Freeman already had a functional career before this movie, but this is like the thing that, that sent him into like cult status, like Bill Murray, oh, yeah. like yeah. meme status where you're no longer a person that can commit sins and, you know, be, be a bad husband or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Like you're no longer this type of, of, of person that like is, can commit, uh, uh, you know, offenses, moral offenses. Um, but like you are now in some sort of weird godhood, and then they literally made two movies where Morgan Freeman was God, and you get it because his voice is just insane. His voice okay, really good. will not be replicating. <laughs> uh, we will not be replicating. Go listen to one of his movies. Yeah, th- I mean this. Like Here, let's, let's pause is... real quickly. Real quickly, let's pause for three seconds. Imagine Morgan Freeman's voice. Yeah, you got it. There's not a single yeah. person. We're not. Yeah, we're not doing. Perfect... <laughs> I, I'm not going to say it's illegal for you to do it if you're by yourself. I don't know. What the, I don't. I don't know what the rules are. If you're are in there. your car, if you're in your car, 
roll up your windows. I mean, you have to you have to live with yourself. I'm not saying to do it. I just don't know it. I don't know if a if a tree makes a Morgan Freeman accent in the forest. Uh, here, actually, here's a really good sense of what you um, how to how to tell whether something's good or bad. Did anyone do it on Family Guy? It's a moral wrong, and I guarantee at some point <laughs> on Family Guy, some white guy did a Morgan Freeman voice, and I'm just saying like. If that's the level of morality that you want to avoid, which you should as a good and just person, just know that even if you're watching a Family Guy episode by yourself, that's a moral wrong. And so, yeah, you know, and we balance know. your own balance your own ledger, but you can just imagine it and don't yeah. say it out loud. I think. Yeah, imagine so yourself those, doing in it. this in those three seconds. I. I hope you imagine Morgan Freeman's voice and you're taking it in and you're hearing what we're saying about yeah, it's the good sort stuff. Of, um, m- the majestic quality to it where everything that he says sounds like music, right? Yeah. Like just incre- incredible line readings. There's nothing we can say that will be any better than just listening to Morgan Freeman's voice for a few seconds. Yeah, it, uh, it is. It's so good. And he I mean, he is the main character of both the book. I mean, he's telling the story of Andy Dufresne. Uh, but, yeah, this movie shot him into the stratosphere for, like, obviously he's been a working actor for a long time and, and not an unknown working actor. But this, they're like, let's let him be president in Deep Impact. Let's let him be God. Like, just <laughs> give him give him any role. He's, he's amazing in it. And part of that is, again, like, you know, we don't get to know Andy. Like, that role is so important in being able to, like, express those things like – even as a as a protagonist that we spend a lot of time with in this movie, he's soft spoken. He doesn't say much. He doesn't really reveal what's under the hood. Like you can project a lot on to Andy Dufresne as a character, and like sometimes Red asks him about like what he thinks about these things. Like when he's doing the scams for the warden, he's like, doesn't that doesn't that like. You're, you're making a bad man rich and you're doing a bunch of illegal things. And he's like, I got the library. I'm helping. Like, he understands that there is a cosmic justice that he feels like he's on the on the right side of. And, like, we know stuff about Andy that, like, when he's getting raped, he always fights back, right? Like, he has this idea of, like, this is an injustice being done to me. This is a crime being done to me. I'm I'm going to fight back every every single time. And, like... You know, there's just you get those little bits. We know he likes rocks. We know, you know, we know he's a smart man. We know he, uh, you know, is has this idea of like wanting to make things better for people around him. But he, but beyond that, he's not like you know to go back to the Capra connection. Like we really get to know who George Bailey is as a person. We really don't get to know who Andy Dufresne is. Like he is almost a a perfect figure in some ways, which is kind of how he's, and part of that you can almost say is like how he's remembered. One of the things the book and the movie touches on is like so many of these stories as they're being narrated is, is, is being narrated from Red's perspective following his escape where he spends another eight years in prison. And they're telling these stories of these, the legend of Andy through the years to other prisoners and stuff like that. And so, you know, we're hitting these like episodic moments in this life, but those are also the the tales they tell everyone because they're memorable to Red and the other prisoners. And so, it, it it's Morgan Freeman like like 
I can see like Tom Hanks in this role. I think Tom Hanks would be good. Tom Hanks is like another person that does this, but um, that kind of has a lot of that like feeling of he has a good voice for narration. It's not Morgan Freeman's voice, but he has a good voice for narration and he would be a good presence in this, but you know. And he'd be a good hustler, you know? Especially 1994, uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah, but you know that thing, like, that, like, Red is, like, you know, he's the hustler. He, like, gets, he gets stuff into, he's a smuggler into the prison. Like, I could see Tom Hanks, like, doing that, like, yeah. quick, fast-talking role where he's, like, yeah. all right, yeah, uh, ten cigarettes on that guy and yeah. food, too. You could see Tom Hanks doing that and then also doing the dig- the dignified parts. It's a hard yeah. movie to recast, though. Do you know who Rob Reiner wanted in the leads when he was going to direct it, right? Yeah. Wasn't it Tom Hanks? <laughs> it was Tom Cruise. As oh, that's right. Tim Robbins' uh, role, which I'm not saying f- it would be horrible. I'm not saying it would be horrible because Tom Cruise's entire career has been me. He's, going, a, he's a blank slate. He, it is, he is that. Yeah. It's me going, this doesn't work. And then five minutes later, me going, holy shit, what is he doing here? This is amazing. Like, it's. I, I just watched Eyes Wide Shut for like the kind of the first time over the holidays. Yeah. And I and I started the movie and I was like, Tom Cruise is so miscast in this movie. And then like twenty minutes later, I was like, No, no, Kubrick was right. This is perfect. And I don't and then, think um, Tom, I don't think Tom Cruise could have been mostly subdued for an entire movie. Like he'd been like, You're being obtuse. <laughs> you know, he'd be, he'd be yelling somewhere in there. This was which wouldn't have felt right. Which, I think they should have just done a full Rain Man reunion and had Dustin Hoffman then as Red. Um, wouldn't be bad. Dustin Hoffman would be a good red. It's not wrong. Um, but Tom, but Tom Cruise, I think, is like very, very iffy for me. Yeah, because I just, I just don't trust him in that kind of role. But you know, maybe it could have worked. Tim Robbins, we'll talk about in a little bit. A lot more really stunts when he escapes out of prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put yeah. me maybe. through the shit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the prison break we got in Ghost Protocol is probably a better use of his talents. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, that's not to knock him. Tom, one of Tom Cruise's great things in his career has has been proving people wrong, right? Yeah. Um, but and then his choice for Red was Harrison Ford as Red, and I could, I could see that pretty pretty. Nineteen ninety four Harrison Ford's not is not. There was a lot of like, I mean, this movie is perfectly cast. Everyone does a great job, and then you read who else they could have done it, and you're like, oh, well, these are, like, some of the biggest movie stars and best actors of all time. So, yeah, I think they probably also could have done okay. It's not like they're like, Tom Selleck. Yeah. I don't think Tom Selleck would have been a good Red at all. It's also, they have a very funny joke in this movie. Uh, in the novel, Red is a, is, a, is a white guy with red hair, which is how he got his names, and I love the little joke. And Morgan Freeman's line delivery with a huge smile, which almost feels like a metatextual smile of like knowing that he, you know, he, this was written to be a white person and he was chosen as the best person for the role. Where he's like, where Tim Robbins is like, why do they call you red? And he's like, big smile, maybe because I'm Irish. It's such a <laughs> such a great little uh, moment. It is a great moment. It's also it's winking at the text. Um, yeah. But this is this is you know there's there's terms that are kind of problematic now like colorblind casting and such but like this is I think on the same level um, as um, casting a woman uh, Sigourney Weaver as Ripley even though yep. written, the role was written as a man for Alien like I think it's on the same level of genius casting where you're like oh you just made the movie. Like, you yep. just created a scenario where now we're rooting for this character in a way that, like, we might not have 
if Harrison Ford had come in super stiff, and some of those roles that Harrison Ford did in the mid-90s, he was just sort of, like, present, which for Harrison Ford Sometimes dangerous. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes that presence clear? was also was clear, Present? surrounded by danger. <laughs> we yeah. have to cover. Yeah, if you if you get now. if you get fucking random hearts, Harrison Ford, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like Harrison Ford, I think, like even in I saw a shitty movie of them called Firewall. Oh um, yeah, that was that was 2002. That was like that was his comeback movie after he had been out for like a few years after What Lies Beneath. Yeah, and uh, I saw I saw Firewall, and I remember being like, "This movie sucks." But just you can't take your eyes off of Harrison no. Ford. Like, I'm not saying the movie would have been ruined, but I'm saying the thing that elevates and turns this movie into gold is Morgan Freeman. Tim Robbins is so good in this movie, and a lot of the things he's doing are so small. Yeah, that and it, like the little wry smile he has and the little yeah. like looking over his glasses at different characters later in the movie when he's like supposed to be in his like late 40s or 50s or whatever yeah. Yeah. um that version of of the of of Andy Dufresne like you can see so many ti- a million small choices that Tim Robbins is making that yeah. like a bigger actor wouldn't have made and we're we're grateful for it. I've I've seen some people be like Tim Robbins is the weak link in this, but it's like, no, you need Morgan Freeman as Red because he's the he's basically yeah. the main character. Yeah, basically the movie is about a guy who has completely given up on the idea that he'll ever get out of prison. He begin he is already loves when we meet him. He loves finding someone that gives him prison. hope, and he finds someone that gives him hope. It takes twenty years, but someone finally is like, "Hey, you're gonna have a life when you get out of here." And if he hadn't met Andy Dufresne, his life would have gone exactly like Brooks Hallen's life. Yeah, yep, yeah. Great call out. That is a hundred percent true. They didn't even take down that weird rafter thing. They, they didn't even. They're like, yeah. The well, that, I th- I think that's a support beam. You think? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's. I thought it was like. That's a, usually, I, that's usually what that is. They could have they could have erased the red. I mean, I'm glad they didn't. That Brooks was here, but um, it is weird they left it up in a like. It's not a prison. This is a joke. The joke is is yeah. The joke is they write it into the prison cells wall so that people will know that you existed because you kind of don't exist when you're (laughs) in prison, and that's why he does it so people know he existed. But it is a little weird. They're like, you know what? Still no TV. Leave it up. Leave it as a warning to everyone. <laughs> as someone who, I, as someone who has uh, had very shitty landlords, fully believe that someone would leave up the suicide note of a of a of a, of a dead eighty year old convict. <laughs> Absolutely, I had a, what I are they going to do? They're going to move out? I, I I think I talked about in the show recently about uh, how I had a landlord who refused to fix my broken window in Chicago. It was like, yeah, I know it's cold, but like, that's like what, like a hundred bucks for me. I had a landlord who renovated the apartment, um, renovated all. He bought it, the place, and he renovated all the apartments after the tenant moved out, so they were nicer because it was kind of a shitty apartment. And then he tried to say that he photoshopped images and said we had damaged the place so much, like literally printed out pieces of paper that like weren't the negatives that he had to replace everything. Uh, and we ended up having to go to mediation and, like, we, we won because he – like, the receipt he sent us for the damage was actually a receipt for the neighboring apartments. And it was all the same stuff he had done to ours after those tenants. And, like, 
It was like, yeah, I mean, insane. Like what the those fucking human scum of the earth will try to do. So yeah, I do agree that they probably were like they probably tried to make Brooks' family pay for it. <laughs> hey, this guy wrote on our wall, and then they gave him the money, and he they pocketed it. He's like, I'm gonna go buy a TV for me, but not these guys. Done <laughs> a whole different movie with the TV. Um, and like the fact that the halfway house looks exactly the same is is sort of about like you know the shit the lack of funding that any yeah. of these these you know prison resources are. Let's I think uh, that's let's like talk Brooks to Brooks to Red uh, Brooks to Andy Dufresne's escape to Red is like the core of the movie. Yeah. Everything else is surrounding that. Everything else is just trying Andy's sense of hope or instilling Andy's sense of hope. Yeah, and there's all those different incidents of, like, how he kind of ingrains himself to the guards. He starts using his financial powers for to help the guards, and they start liking him, gets everyone beer and cushier jobs. And eventually, the warden does, a like, a work-for-hire program for the con men, which he's using to get kickbacks, and Andy Frayne is laundering the money. They do a really good job of making the villain, cart- the warden, cartoonishly evil in, like how much he's abusing these prisoners while also making extremely rel- – like, that's the thing is these people, 100% wardens and fucking shitty politicians, like, how many how many stories have there been just in the last 10 years about literal, like, for-profit prisons for kids with a judge taking kickbacks to sentence kids to these fucking, like, actual prisons because the parents had to pay money to keep them there and stuff like that. Like, he's cartoonishly evil, as are these fucking monsters that exist in real life that are, like – you know, claim to be like serving at the righteousness of God to help these prisoners and probably believe that themselves while like abusing, exploiting, murdering and, um, you know, uh, gaining wealth for themselves. So like it's such a perfect foil because you are so like the prison break would be satisfying anyways, which we can talk about here in a second. But the fact that it happens to this fucking guy is, like, so satisfying. Like, it is probably, and I mean this in a way that I don't mean to be triggering for anyone, the most satisfying suicide in any movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, it is so satisfying when he – and the camera seems to know it because so many times when someone puts a gun to their head and kills themselves, the camera cuts away. You see it cuts away you hear the shot they fucking show the blood pouring from his face and the glass breaking behind and i think most people go like this is the movie your whole family's enjoying and you're like yeah fuck that guy it absolutely is, it is very weird that like that as someone who is often triggered by depictions of suicide right it is amazing that when I saw that scene, I, like, wanted to get up and clap. I know. It, it is. It, and again, I don't. I'm because sure. This man, is a, this man is a suicide machine, right? Like, yeah. this man is, is, a, is a machine that in, takes in hope and turns it into people without hope. People yeah. with And then for him to go out that way is, for him to, to go out that way, it's, like, it's beyond the political, like, even, like, you know, Brooks Hatland to me in my head, I'm like, he died by suicide. He was a man who was left with no options, and, yeah. and the mental illness of, of depression took took over him, and that's something sad and delicate, and that's something, yeah. that, like, I'm, I, I, like, want to use, like, very gentle language around, because that's, like, you know. Um, 
this the, the fucking warden put put a fucking thirty eight <laughs> round through his head like the fucking warden he made a he made a new hole for himself like I yeah. have like it's like it's like for some reason my triggers get dropped because the, I hate the warden so much right yeah like, and it, and again like the the reason why it's not known as like well the warden's cartoonishly evil is because it's basically like people are worse like there it's it's that kind of satisfying thing of like. Someone like like life is precious and human beings have value. And then there's people like this warden and their equivalents in real life that are like, the world is a better place if you don't exist. Like, I, it's not my fault. I didn't choose to be you. But like, objectively, it's better without you in it. You are a monster spreading death, yeah. destruction, exploitation, slavery, literally. And like, yeah, I have no qualms. And it is a very satisfying scene. And it's it's only kind of humorous because I was like, I expected it to cut away. And I'm like, man, does anyone remember how fucking like it just hangs on it? Blood splatters against this window that breaks from the bullet in the movie. Your whole They probably don't even edit it on TNT. They're I, I probably think I'm like, t- fuck I, this guy. They, <laughs> Everyone they, deserves to see this. If they showed this is at 11 a.m., they would still show it the same way because yeah. even even like an 11 year old is like it's like yeah, leave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's and again, it's Go it's on, a testi- get out. It's a testament to the movie that that is like seen as, as you said, like you want to stand up and and cheer. Like the only thing I wish is you had time to reload and get one more in there. You little piece <laughs> of shit. Like it's so, uh, it's so like uh, on a very like normally not satisfying in any capacity topic. It is a yeah because it's not it's not a it's not a tragic death, right? No. It's it's a it's, it's a, a just, justified just, yeah it's a justice in in a movie that has so so little justice right like yeah like re- the thing that's interesting about the movie is like Andy helps save Red and he makes everybody's lives a little better right that's that's probably true um yep. it, it, everybody that he he encounters he makes their lives a little better um except for Tommy um he. <laughs> Ruins Tommy's life. Um, <laughs> not his fault necessarily, but yeah, uh, yeah he he was he did not uh, spread a little bit of mirth and joy. Yeah. Um, but let's. What, they should make a sequel where Tommy's kid seeks revenge on Andy. Like, you just let my if you would have not brought my dad into your life, he'd still be alive. <laughs> you were an he old man. Goddamn old shit. <laughs> You're and the, an the kid is librarian to your time. <laughs> the kid is the kid is on the outside of Andy Dufresne's boat with one of those like hand crank drills. <laughs> He's in a scuba suit. <laughs> you should have fought your case in court. Not my dad's fault. You lost. You piece of shit. <laughs> Adios. Yeah, hope you, you might to, not. Hope you learn to swim. You might not be guilty of killing your wife, but you're guilty of killing my dad. And by God, I'm going to be guilty of killing you. <laughs> He's 40. That's just the way he talks because he was raised without a father. <laughs> that's just how it works. Uh, you, you it's kind of like, you it's never, kinda, you never it's met kinda, anyone with a deep voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't wasn't catching. No. Uh, It's like how Quentin Tarantino always talked about making that Kill Bill um, uh, sequel from the perspective of Vivica Fox's daughter or whatever. Like, I'd like if Darabont takes that and, like, I'm going to make 
want to make a perspective of this guy's kid who goes <laughs> to kill Andy Dufresne. <laughs> Fuck you, I got Walking Dead money and the rights to the story. <laughs> <laughs> he does have $200 million, right? And like, as far as we know, I don't think he doesn't have the rights to the story. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how, I don't know how that works exactly, but maybe Castle Rock does. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, let's talk about the prison break and wrap up. So yeah, let's let's talk about the prison break. So an interesting thing that they do throughout the course of the movie is that you think this is a prison. This is a secret prison break movie because Andy Dufresne is doing a secret prison break. Um, I had no idea watching this movie that that like it does a good job of doubling back and telling you how the prison break happened over twenty years. But like when that rock goes through the fucking poster and he puts his hand through i was like mind is blown as the prison warden in that moment and that is why it is so genius because it does give you all the pieces that are happening at no point did i think the poster was covering up a hole at no point did i think it wasn't anything like it is so good and so like the glee when you see all of these little moments reframed in different ways is it's just – it's a series of just satisfying things. Like, over 30 minutes, Warden's death, Morgan Freeman meeting him, like, all these little moments where he, like, outsmarts everyone. It is so goddamn satisfying. Yeah, it's – it's uh, it's it's incredible. But it's, it's one of those things where, like, sure, the audience is, like, tricked by this, like, twist ending or whatever. But, like – when that twist comes, the entire point is that, like, this movie has been basically showing you and making jokes about Andy Dufresne getting out of this place. And you, you've yeah. been taking it as this sort of spiritual, metaphysical kind of thing. And then the movie is like, no, he actually was carving through the wall. for Yeah, he wants years. to get out. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to get out, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't want to be in prison anymore and he didn't murder yeah. his wife. Yeah. Um. Harrison Ford would be like, he didn't kill his wife. <laughs> I didn't kill my wife. Yeah, he already has the line. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure there would have been a lot of stories of like, is this guy only doing movies where he doesn't kill his wife? Like Fugitive it was would 93. Be a yeah. It'd be yeah, a Fugitive. What, what's the third one? Uh, what Lies Beneath. No, he did kill his wife. But yeah. Spoilers. The movie where the movie where his friend didn't. Kill I his killed wife. The movie my where wife. He didn't kill his wife. The movie where he did kill his wife. And then a lot actually, of wife problems. He's a tactic, he's a new he's a new wife guy. The no, I may or may not have guy. killed my wife guy. Technically, what lies beneath is also a I didn't kill my wife movie because he does not successfully kill his wife, the second wife in that movie. Well, no, she's a ghost now. No, he killed the first wife, and then Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't die, right? It's been a while since I've seen that. I am pretty sure he does kill Michelle Pfeiffer. Doesn't she, she get out of the back. bathtub and then kill him? Yeah, but because she's a ghost then. So I think she no, does there's kill a, there's him. A, the, the first wife that he already killed is a ghost in helping. Uh, that movie kind of sucks, by the way. I remember really liking it. I saw it like three or four times in theaters, but I'm sure it's not good. Should we do What Lies Beneath at some point? We can do We can do a PG-13 ghost movie month. Mm-hmm. We already did the only really great one, though. Well, I mean, Ring. people like The Sixth Sense, but I am a little iffy on it. But. Yeah. Good twist. Um, okay. Okay. So, um, the 
successive series of posters of pinup pinup uh, beauties um, carving through the wall. The only part of this I don't find convincing is when he has to break through that pipe, and he gets through that fucking pipes in one night. In one night, he gets through that pipe. He should have already been through the pipe. Also. He puts his head through the hole, and you're like, there's no way Tim Robbins will fit through that hole or into the pipe. And then he's all of a sudden in the pipe. Like, that's – he's got he, – like, if that lightning storm goes away, he's totally fucked. One of the other funny changes to the to the book – and again, this is just a casting thing. Andy, the whole thing, they're like, he was able to get through that pipe because he was such a short dude. Like, he's a short king in the – in the book, they keep talking about how small he is and how small frame, and then they get like six foot four Tim Robbins, uh, which works so much better for the movie in a visual medium because he's like this weird, gentle, giant, imposing figure, but still very solid like, shoulders. Yeah, but still very like um, you know soft in a, in a lot of different ways, and but it does make the like him <laughs> going through the little sewer pipe a little less convincing. Um, yeah, you though, know. though it does, it adds to the drama. It adds to the drama when you're like, "Oh my god, he actually was like on his elbows." Oh yeah, what is it? What is it? Five five hundred yards or something? Five hundred yards. Yep, almost a half a mile. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, yeah, I would have. I, I would have. For what it's worth, I would. I would have probably done it too. It's one of those things where you're yeah. like, you're like, that sounds brutal, but also yes. No, no one's like, but fuck it, I'm going back. God, go back through my hole. I had a I had a Morgan Freeman impression locked and loaded. Uh, I, I was gonna I was gonna say it, this is in my voice. Yeah, uh, Andy Dufresne S- speaking as Morgan uh, Freeman. Andy Dufresne had pink eye for the next six years. <laughs> first person, first adult who ever died of pink eye. <laughs> it's in Mexico. He's like, actually, I can't hug you. Is they have not invented the medicine yet. <laughs> there's I don't know if you know this. There's viral and there's bacterial pink eye. Uh, I have both forever. <laughs> oh. It would be funny, even funnier if like he is he gets to that boat instead of him carving it, he's like dead on his back on the sand and just you see blood. Running down the reddest eyes you've ever ever seen in your life. And he's also gotten dysentery and clearly just shit his pants for a month. (laughs) Uh, But it's fine. He he, he washed up in the shit river. He washes up in the shit river and then some rain falls on him. It's fine. How long do you think it would take to actually get the shit stink off of you if you fell in shit river? It would be funny if when he went into one of those banks, they're like, what's that smell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does get in the river, but the river's a shit river. Like you said, <laughs> like, it's not, did he get, did he find a shower? Like, no one is going to give me this money <laughs> at these banks. They're going to kick me right out. Um, <laughs> um, but then that's the majestic shot that you see. <laughs> not literally the majestic shot. I know. Like, you keep saying, it's like the third time you've said majestic. And it's like, no, that was his bad movie, Peter. But this is, that's the thing about, he's he's making like maj- majestic filmmaking. And then he literally made a movie called The Majestic. And people were that like. That was literally trying to yeah. do, like, he's like, I just want to put something good Frank Capra stuff out there. It's like. Nah, you don't though. You need you maybe you need a little bit of Stephen King or some darkness in there, bud. Not just about a 
guy. I still haven't like, seen that movie, and I. I saw someday, it in someday I, I, so, I, will be, I was so excited for it. Someday I will be very excited. Someday I will, I will muster up the courage. I will be in the first five or ten minutes and be like, maybe this isn't bad. And then by the end, I will know what it's, everybody else knows. It's 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 so. I just have to know for myself. So, you should. Uh, I would like. I have I to put my be, hand in the Gamjabar box. <laughs> I again, I've said this before. The thing I remember is like it played. It came out as a freshman in college. I saw it in theaters. There was a promo reel that it, that I've tried to find that aired endlessly on MTV. Um, and I was watching a lot of MTV for whatever reason. Um, and there's a part where like because it's like post nine eleven, and they're really hitting on like this is something. This is like heartwarming, and everyone needs this because our country. And like Jim Carrey is like manically going, I just wanted to put something good out there. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Uh, but I ate it up. I couldn't wait for it. It was so bad. Yeah. Someday. Um, but yeah, let's what let's let's walk through kind of like what else uh what else is in the movie we want to talk about that maybe other people haven't covered. This is it's I talked we talked about this with Carrie last week. Um and they were saying it's it's intimidating to cover like a big movie as opposed to like a, a silly cult movie and I'm like I actually feel the inverse, which is yeah. that like I don't feel the need to talk about every scene, every no. moment in Shawshank Redemption because it's not just a movie that has been like extensively covered and there's a million YouTube channels that are like, Shawshank Redemption, best movie ever? Um, it's, I don't know. It's always a question. Um, <laughs> I know what you're going to say in the video. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, it takes a lot of pressure off of me. Um, because I'm like, we don't actually have to talk about every, every moment. I just want to talk about the fact that they, the cast is incredible before we go. It mm-hmm. is, it's hard to tell if this is a chicken or the egg, but like situation, but like this cast is full of actors. I eventually became like yeah. obsessed with, um, and like yeah, watched cast. as much as yeah. there's, uh, people who I watched as much of their stuff as, as, as I reasonably could. Right. Taking Morgan Freeman out, right? Um, like, William Sadler is someone who, like, I want to watch literally everything William Sadler makes. Like, he is just mm-hmm. such a magnetic presence. He's scary. He's funny. And this, just having him as a comic relief, just adds so much warmth to the movie. Yeah. He's just, like, kind of their, like, their, like, ineffectual, naive redneck friend. He's just sort of, like, a good old like boy. Hank but, like, yeah, he likes Hank Williams. He doesn't really understand anything emotionally complex, but he'll be like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry about your hat or whatever. <laughs> like, like, he doesn't really understand anything too complex, but he's like, um, like just a, kind of like a sweet dummy in this movie. There's a scene where he, um, so he bets on the, the, the fat guy to break on the first night. And then as the fat guy is being like beaten, beaten for crying, you can, the Frank keeps cutting back to show just William Sadler as Haywood, just like, oh fuck, like why am I doing this? Like the cost of this stupid yeah. betting game that they all have is like clearly mm-hmm. weighing on him. And then the next morning he's like, and the next morning he's like trying to put on his tough face for his friends, but you can tell it's like eating them up on the inside. Like William Sadler is so good in this movie. Yeah, as is Clancy Brown, uh, who is good um, in everything. As the as Clancy the Brown guy. is the next one. I, yeah, 
I want Cl- Clancy Brown is in that special category of guy who like I, I, there's a reason Verhoeven wanted to work with him. Like <laughs> he's in that special category of guy where I'm like, I could watch you in anything. He's so fucking cool. Yeah. And he's apparently like a really good guy in real life. Like he um, is. Yeah. I know personally. For someone who always plays heavies, like yeah. he's apparently a really good dude. Yeah. Uh yeah, he is uh and he's 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 great in this. I mean he's yeah, he not not surprising he's a good villain character, but he's a very imposing villain figure. You 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 need to have the sense of him that like he will take advice from this guy somewhat essentially get a bunch of money off this guy protect this guy and also be very satisfied when he gets to kick the shit out of him like when he plays the records and like that's kind of a tough thing because it feels like oh why is Clancy Brown turning on this guy that he protected before but he makes it real he makes it like hey I kind of just like inflicting violence and pain he's the toughest screw to ever walk the halls at Shawshank and like Clancy Brown in a in a um he doesn't get that much lines of dialogue because he is the the heavy and the imposing figure. But that smile he gets when he realizes he gets to beat the shit out of Andy is like probably like the actual like scariest little moment in the movie. There's obviously like conceptually a lot of scarier concepts that are in play, like you know the abuse in prison and everything else. But that little smile when you're like, oh, I thought this guy was kind of your buddy. Why are you so happy that you – it's just because you just like a chance to kick the shit out of someone. Like, that's what you're living for in this prison. And even if it's Andy or anyone else, like, you you know, the, uh, you know, know the other guards wouldn't have found that satisfying. They would have been like, oh, fuck. Come on, Andy. I don't want to have to mess you up. When he's in the hole and the other guards are talking to him, they're like, hey, your boy graduated. Or, you know, they, they like Andy. And Clancy Brown is like, nah, I like beating people up quite a lot and I'm going to take special pleasure in getting to do it to Andy because I haven't got to do it in a while yeah yeah uh, there's a weird thing that happens where like Aunt, all of Andy's pranks or you know Andy's antics are like like the playing the record um, mm-hmm. the, the Italian um, like opera record where like the guards are like <laughs> the guards are the guards are, are are like you know you didn't like beat anybody up you didn't threaten any safety or whatever it's just that this was like a ethical threat to this is like a, yeah, a, a stability threat to, to yeah. our goal of breaking these people's souls right um and we've given andy special treatment so if if he's allowed to do these things it sets a terrible precedent which is why they punish him so harshly originally yeah, and it, and it's the idea is like it's not just that he broke the rules and he locked a guard in the toilet. It's that um, Andy gave all of them like a group sense of hope, right? Yeah, that like was not an approved you know moment. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I love that. Um, I also I always talk about when we did the mist. I talked about him when we did uh, the blob. I talked about him. Um, big big Jeffrey Demun fan. Um, I love him. He's he's really great. Okay, so I talked about the mist. I talked about he's in Green Mile. He's in he's in pretty much every yeah, he's, one he's of the Bond movies. Um, but he, uh, I also want to call out that he was great in the. There's an HBO movie called Citizen X, which may be on HBO Max. I'm not totally sure. Um, I'm familiar but, with the cover. I've never seen it. I've seen Citizen Kane, Citizen Ruth, but not Citizen, Citizen X. X. No. 
Um, Citizen X is about uh, it's it's like a, mo- a TV movie that HBO made that's great. And it's about the hunt for a Russian serial killer um, in Russia. So it's it's basically you know kind of like a Chernobyl thing. Like it's a bunch of people doing it's a bunch of people speaking English. Like are mostly British actors, um, but it's about uh, a, a piece of Russian history that was kind of buried by the Soviet Union. Um, but uh, yeah, Jeff Demon absolutely rules. He's great in his small role in this. Like. Leave it at that. Uh, can I tell you the worst uh, news about a very good role um, or a very good actor in here who plays? So Bob Gutton, mm-hmm. Gunton, Gunton, mm-hmm. Bob Gunton plays the warden. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's good. He he had, he was in like Dolores Claiborne, and um, he's been in a few things. He's, um, he's, he has a, he has a really great presence and really sense of creepiness about him. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what his last role was? What? He uh, was in Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, which was a motion capture role with Harold Ramis's uh, likeness superimposed over him. Oh, no. That's so depressing. That's <laughs> very depressing. He, he was a body double for a dead guy that shouldn't have been in Ghostbusters. I think there's people listening that probably don't know that Harold Ramis's ghost. It was that movie kind of disappeared so quickly. Like, I well, they're making a sequel to it. God, that's insane. Uh, yeah, that movie is terrible. And I think that everyone who disliked Ghostbusters 2016, which I think is a very good movie and a very enjoyable movie, um, sh- are, should be forced to watch Afterlife over and over as the movie that they wanted. Because that movie is yeah. so bad. Uh, and that was the worst part. Can I share a Jeff DeMunn's? Can I share a, a good Jeff DeMunn story really quickly? Yeah, that's better than the ending um, on that note that I just shared. Yeah, so walking when the uh, after obviously Frank Darabont was fired from The Walking Dead, Jeff DeMunn just spent like the entire. He was only on two seasons of the show. He spent the entire second season begging the writers and producers to kill him off because he didn't want to be on the show anymore because they fired his friend. <laughs> and so the, that that character Dale is in tons of the comic book. Um, he's in hundreds of issues after that, I think. Um, but he was like just so pissed off and he like didn't want to he like he was just like I don't want to be on here anymore that he gave up a ton I don't want to be around anymore of, I don't want to be around it he Carl havoc it yeah um, he he gen, he genuinely just he was just like out of loyalty to his friend he was like I know the show is doing really well I don't give a fuck get me out of here I don't want to be on this like soulless project anymore like yeah. Jeff Demon is is the Walking Dead guy that we should all aspire to be because he he joined up because of the same reason all of us did good project good people working on it and then he was like i'm out this is do you think mess. do you think when he got his lawsuit he's like hey frank uh remember who your friends were <laughs> hey you think he got like a he got like a a, a, a sympathy bucket with like a hundred thousand dollars, a little bit of cash. Fuck, I'm sure some. I'm sure a bunch. He was of like, "Hey, go like, out, got like go out to these walls that, right? in Maine, and somewhere behind one, Jeff, I've left you uh, uh, under a under a volcanic rock that has no earthly business being in a field." <laughs> uh, so there's a there's a story that if you don't know who Jeff Demon is, hopefully you respect his integrity as a friend today a little bit more. Also in the book, did you know that they make red? Like he spends months searching through all the fields. <laughs> he just keeps no. Going. 
yeah, he like keeps it's not like he finds the field, like he makes it his weekend things that he does as he goes up to that town and searches for field looking for the one that matches the description um for months. It's a it's a little bit more depressing because it's like, Andy, could you have spent an extra 30 seconds describing this? Maybe just like a P.O. box. Hey, go to this P.O. box. I'll have it ready for you, bud. It's why in movies they use they use coordinates so much, right? Like nobody actually knows how to use coordinates. But like in your mind, you're like, somebody could teach me how to if use I, coordinates. If I needed to know coordinates, I could yes. use coordinates. Yes, I, uh, I needed to. <laughs> a great little bit of physical acting. Then we go to final thoughts, though. I do love when Morgan Freeman is digging up that money and how many times. He doesn't just do it once. He doesn't just do it twice. He does it three or four times. Where as he's opening, he keeps looking around. And like an abandoned field because he feels like he's doing something he sh- he shouldn't be, and because of his four decades in a prison system where people were constantly watching him, and I I love he, that he just constantly just no matter what he's in the middle of nowhere, no one could sneak up on him in this quick moment, and he still just can't help himself, but constantly looking around to make sure he's alone. It's a great great little moment. Um. Yeah. My final thought, I think, you know, I hope we covered it a little bit differently than some other podcasts. podcasts. I I want your biggest takeaway to be that I'm pretty sure no other podcast has talked about, which is, of course, uh, Brooks would be alive if they would have put a TV in that room. Um, that's my that's my main take. I want you to go home and tell your loved ones what they think about that, ideally. <laughs> that's your takeaway. Um, but no, I mean, this – I. Like, this has been – this is an example of where the month is, like, really easy because, like, I needed no motivation whatsoever to watch Goodfellas and Shawshank Redemption. It was – it was I knew I was going to like them. It hadn't been that long since I saw them. And it was like, God, I fucking love this movie. And, you know, one of the things that I think this month is getting at a little bit, even though it's if it's not solely about that – is like how special it is to find a movie that lasts this long in your life. I mean, we talked about a love for Donnie Darko or even a love for Fight Club that I think gets worn away a little bit by time. I'm not going to go rush out and watch Donnie Darko ever again, and maybe I'll watch Fight Club one more time, one or two more times in my life. I will show Shosh like I would. I didn't show it to to my uh, my oldest because I'm like, yeah, it's. I don't think she quite understands the like. There's, I think there's so much like heartwarming, and it's a movie you kind of want to show to people you care about that you know haven't seen it because it's such a good movie. But like, it's a wonderful life. I think there's a lot of complexity that won't, just won't register for her. Um, but it it is such a like. It, it's I'll be watching. I I don't have to. I'll watch this again a year from now, two years from now, five years. Like this movie's never going away, and it's it's. Um, it's great that there's a movie that is like means as much to me as when I was 16 and not in a nostalgia way. Like this, this movie hits all the same buttons. It's so perfectly calibrated and so perfectly made to like a, like a, it's a wonderful life to make you want to stand up and cheer. And even the, all of the baggage of being like everyone's favorite movie and overplayed in theaters and like, one of the most rented movies of all time and the number one movie on IMDb. Like it can't, you know, this is, this is actually fine for it to be. I'd rather have this as the number one movie than the dark Knight or something else or Marvel Endgame or whatever, you know, whatever else it is, because this, this is a, this is a great consensus picks for 
you know, a best movie or a favorite movie of all time, even if it's not my personal choice, it's in the conversation as something you can rewatch over and over. Yeah, this is the uh, my. I agree with you. I didn't. I thought I didn't have a final thought, but I think my final thought is just that there's like a lot of people that probably see the fact that we're covering this episode and then they listen and, and see that like we're not actually taking down this movie that like is a film bro classic. Um, I had no interest in gaining cool points by uh, talking shit about Shawshank Redemption today. Um, yeah. No interest in that. Um, I understand that the tides of film Twitter dumb can uh, and, you know, online film dork spaces uh, have kind of shifted away from talking about this movie. But I think it's it's one of those things that like the cliche just got annoying to hear. And then people started to doubt the that the cliche was true, yeah. um, which is fair. Um, it's, it's annoying. It, that's a Citizen hear, Kane thing too, right? It's annoying to hear that the Beatles are good, but like, yeah, I know. go sit down and listen to Revolver and tell me that they're bad, right? Yeah. Um, it's a movie that I think is just about perfect. I have, I think it aged actually really, really well in a weird yeah. way. Um, the prison rape stuff probably is a little, is, is you know maybe a little retrograde in the in the way these conversations happen. But like, it's a movie that takes place at, like that section takes place in the fifties and it's being narrated yeah. by Red, so I think it's pretty safe actually. Yeah. Um, so i I don't have like i do, I don't have like a grand opinion of the fact that like these movies get canonized sometimes by like a popular group of like online people like a, a group of, of people popularly let's say and then a lot of people see that and then they're like the people that are saying this movie is great are annoying uh, i want to talk about other types of movies and then over time just gradually associating that movie with the annoying people like yeah i, I see that with a lot of like david fincher and christopher nolan stuff like that i, yeah. I find very annoying i'm like it's you know this the prestige is not at this level you know but the prestige is also one of these movies that like i've seen get knocked knocked down by film twitter dorks because like um because like the film bro like uh r slash movies guys are obsessed with it like um i i get that the people that you might associate with the movie are bad but i assure you in this case it's your is- parents Yes, exactly. I, I mean, film. I mean, film. Twi- like the film bro thing, it's a part of it, but it's it's it almost has a different stink on it than Christopher Nolan and David Fincher or Fight Club because it's like universally embraced by everyone. Which, like, I think your Beatles comparison is a is a great one. It's it's. I it took me forever to actually listen to stuff like Revolver and the Beatles because I was like, oh, the Yellow Submarine guys everyone likes and like who cares? Yeah, the Beatles are good. I don't care about Elvis Presley. I don't care about the Beatles. I don't care about the Beach Boys. Like that's a very easy opinion to have at a younger age. And then you like listen to it and you're like, oh, I like you listen to Pet Sounds. You listen to Revolver. Listen to All of Abbey Road, and you're like, "Oh, I get why people would go. This is fucking some of the best stuff ever." Like you, you, you get it. And I think I think Shawshank has the same thing. It's the, the one of the worst things you can have is a movie that everyone loves because it's like, how could everyone love this? It just must mean it's bland or not interesting. But like, you know, my my criticism of the people that like it is they're they are missing the central thesis of the movie about prison and police and justice and all the other things through there. But like, 
as a movie, it it deserves it. I, th- I think even like Scott Tobias of the Dissolve said, like, yeah, Shawshank isn't my favorite movie of all time, but it's a good pick for the number one movie on IMDb, and that's not a shade or a criticism. Like, it's not. It's okay that everyone loves this movie. This is a lovable movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh it's 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 okay. It, it's okay to embrace the cliche a little bit here. Um just uh maybe uh you attract more flies with honey than vinegar um online film doors. Uh, and have you ever heard the bros. saying that only a hick sits around all day trying to figure out the best way to catch flies, Peter? <laughs> it's one of my one of my favorite Phil Hartman lines from news radio. <laughs> but yeah, let's uh let's end it. Let's well, end it. what are we uh, should we decide on air? We have four more movies to cover. I was yeah. thinking we Peter probably was here. Sh- Aaron was here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm watching TV though, buddy. Um what should we uh what should we do next week? I was thinking we probably we did a couple big ones. I feel like we got to I think we do Clockwork Orange and Boondock as the last two. So I think it's a choice between Scarface or Train Spotting. Peter's choice. Let's do Train Spotting. All right. So next week and then we are Scarface. doing Train Spotting, Scarface and then depending on schedules we'll let you know. The, yeah. the next it's our two. summer are you it's yeah it is our summer it's it's watch boy summer <laughs> it's watch boy summer um have you really quickly uh have you seen t2 it's great yeah okay well it's good sorry it's really good it's really good yeah. it's as good uh, as that movie has any right to make to make it it that is surprisingly very good okay i might rewatch. uh we don't have to cover it but i might rewatch t2 because i really yeah. liked it when i came out so uh but yeah next week uh, choose uh, Peter we'll to memorize the whole poster. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. 
show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help, and so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>